0: Digital Gonzo, episode 160, recorded Tuesday, the 17th of December, 2013. The Desolation of Smaug. Theatrical edition.
1: The Lord of Silver Fountains. The King of Carvenstone. The King Beneath the Mountain. And the bell shall ring in gladness at the mountain king's return. But all shall fail in sadness, and the lake will shine and burn. You have no right. No right to enter that mountain. I have the only right.
0: What is this place?
1: The desolation of Smaug. Destroy the dragon Take back your homeland The dwarf never became Our time has come again It is not our fight
2: Are we not part of this world?
1: You seek that which would bestow upon you the right to rule The stone.
2: What's that? That,
1: Master Burglar, is why you are here. We are in grave danger. The world is in grave danger. I feel for you. If this is to end in fire, then we will all burn together.
3: You can't give up now! It never ceases to amaze me. The courage of hobbits...
0: Welcome back to the ninth part of the Middle-Earth series of Gonzo Podcasts. To any newcomers, the first episode was a prologue focusing on the books and animated films. The next six were two-part super in-depth reviews of the Lord of the Rings films. Following that was a first impressions roundtable of the then-just-recently-released and viewed theatrical edition of The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey. A tone we will be reprising tonight with its follow-up. And the 8th was a Sound of Gonzo celebration of the music of Howard Shaw's Lord of the Rings scores. Next December, we should bring you a theatrical edition podcast of Film 3, There and Back Again. And the following December, at the end of 2015, after the release of the last extended edition Blu-ray, we will cover the whole trilogy again with the depth and familiarity we possessed during the Lord of the Rings shows. Having had years worth of access to the appendices and a full overview of the trilogy as a whole. If I were a betting man, I'd say a hobbit sound of gonzo as well. Once again, if you are filled with apathy about these films or boundless spite towards their creators, these are not the podcasts for you. We like them. <laughs> with me, with me once again are Chris Eason of Game Burst, the Elrond of these shows.
3: Oh, hi, hi. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that.
0: <laughs> and Sharon Shaw, our Galadriel.
2: Oh, thank you.
0: And I myself, Alex Shaw, arriving precisely when I mean to, and filling the well-worn and wizardy shoes of Gandalf. Um, I actually gave us these roles last year when we were doing the Hobbit sham, but as I recall, you were um, held up at a station. You were, you got on the wrong train or the wrong platform or something. Oh it?
2: God, yes, I remember. You came I in missed my train. Through. I yeah. did.
0: So another year has gone by and there are many more people who have joined the clarion call of hate and derision. Yesterday I read a simple question, which dwarves die in the Hobbit trilogy? A simple query from a newcomer. The response was the following. The book, The Hobbit, is not a trilogy. It's just one short book. You are probably old enough to cope with reading it all by yourself. And you're talking about the movie you do realize the hobbit is also a book just one volume and quite short you could try reading it and despite the idiocies of jackson or possibly his accountats the hobbit is not a trilogy how he's going to pad out the second and third films is beyond me and finally the hobbit is not a trilogy stop trolling So let's actually look at this aggressive, self-entitled, elitist, dismissive, derisive, ignorant, and inconsiderate sentiment which so often goes hand-in-hand with the adherence to sheer mathematics of film adaptation. The Hobbit novel is shorter than any one of the three sections that Tolkien's mammoth odyssey was forcibly divided into by Unwin's publishers. Therefore, it stands to reason in the minds of the unreasonable that it should make for one movie, shorter, in fact, than any of the three Lord of the Rings pictures." This does not take into account a bullet-pointed list of REALITY. Tolkien paced this book entirely differently to any third of the Lord of the Rings. It is light and episodic and bounds from one scenario to the next, rarely pausing for a moment. To belligerently demand the same treatment would require the shearing off of almost all the characterization, all links to the Lord of the Rings trilogy that we've seen so far, as well as sitting through each of the ten action set pieces detailed in the book in one sitting. That's the Trolls, the Giants, Gollum, the Goblins, the Wags, the Spiders, the bowels, smog, the Desolation, and the five armies these sequences were also penned some 76 years ago for six-year-olds and as written are so tame and short that it renders them redundant alongside contemporary adventure cinema except of course the battle sequence which given to interpretation could take up an hour of the running time and feature an armed conflict larger than any committed to film save for the return of the king Add to these action sequences four scenarios in which the dwarves are captured, trolls, goblins, spiders, elves, four in which they enjoy someone's hospitality, Bilbo, Elrond, Bayon, Laketown, and at least three where they are just waiting around until something happens. Mirkwood, Doorstep, Erebor. The resultant film, if done with the level of detail and characterization resplendent Splendid of The Lord of the Rings, would be six hours long and unwatchable in a single sitting. Without that level of detail, it would still be four hours of relentless action and wandering, only with far less motivation, and it would still be a total mess, as well as twee and shallow. The complaining would then come from everybody else as to why this film even exists. We also wouldn't have gotten Galadriel, Saruman, Azog, Toriel, Legolas, Bold, Thrall, Thrain, the Necromancer, Sauron, the Witch-King, Limdeer, Radagast, Sebastian the Hedgehog, Old Bilbo, Frodo, any characterization for any of the dwarves save for Thorin, the Sacking of Erebor, Infant Bilbo, the White Council, Dolgul, Dobri, multiple warg and org attacks, any connection between Smaug and Sauron, the Furnace Chase, interspecies romance, any female characters at all the credit songs for the first two films, and everything that I haven't yet mentioned that's in the third film but wasn't in the book. Now, this film sounds horrible and a total waste of money, time and talent, not even considering the fact that Weta would be spending millions of dollars on scenarios that would be on screen for mere minutes. By all means, spend the rest of your lives bitching about these movies, but do be aware that what you are mistakenly lamenting the loss of is no loss at all. They are, however, not beyond reproach for me. I do not adore these films anywhere near as much as I do the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and most of the reasons I love them is because of their intrinsic connection to the originals. Looking at everything I have said above, there is still a solid argument for why these films could possibly have been the originally planned two halves. They would be longer, with some scenes considered extraneous reserved for the extended editions, which would make the pair bigger crowd-pleasers. And this is now becoming clearer with this second movie, which contains a clear breakpoint where the first version of film one would have ended. The -the behind-the-scenes appendices revealed a lot more green-screen scenarios than I had expected. Every swooping composite crane shot with millennial rubber acrobatics, it's 2012-2013 now, distances it ever so slightly from the tangibly real Middle-earth we were immersed in 11 years ago. There are instances of wibbly CG creatures in place of practical prosthetics, most obvious in scenarios where to simply use human actors would not endanger them. They pop right out of the screen and draw attention to the watchful. I do not like any of the concessions made to 3D, nor will I ever. The required absence of the bigoture may necessarily serve the sharp eyes of HD cameras for 48 frames per second, but a weight has been lifted from too many of the structures as a result. It is this that pulls me out of the story and draws my mind inexorably to the edit. The moments are few and far between, but prevalent enough to alter the tone of these newer films. We are still, however, looking at three of the most fun, heartfelt, expertly performed, beautifully shot, painstakingly crafted, wonderfully scored fantasy adventures of all cinema history, and I am holding back a few superlatives for next year's There and Back Again, which could add heartbreaking to the list. Ultimately, we will not know the full story of what they could have been in order to optimize them until December 2015 in two years, when the last of the extended editions comes out. And by then, I will simply be so full of emptiness that Weta will never again revisit Middle Earth, that the idea of scissoring down the films will be unthinkable to me. So, it starts off in Brie, and I suspect this was one of the new uh, reshoot scenes that was uh, put together after it became three films, because it, it, they had to join, in the same way that they had to do a, a new scene at uh, the end of film one, to give us some sort of resolution. As I understand it, the, um, the whole bit where Thorin confronts Azog was added to uh, film one to give it more of a sort of a, a, a final confrontation, and so... To lead in with film two, there's more kind of uh, uh, an idea of that this quest brewing. So, what did you guys think of the Bree and the sudden new, uh, reappearance of Carrot Man? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that did make me. <laughs> we were laugh. the only people who cheered. Everyone else was like, <laughs> Carrot. I know. What?
2: what have you not seen the first one? Oh, and um, I was absolutely
0: I've... right last year. I said he could have been a dwarf. He was totally a dwarf. He's yes. the one that runs right by Thorin as they're going, going out the front door.
2: Absolutely. Um, one of the things I really loved about this um, this intro scene, actually, was obviously it, it begins the long stream of, of callbacks to the original trilogy, um, which I, I'm sure we'll talk about some of the others later on, but I don't blame them for at all. Um, but I loved the fact that this was shot in a slightly different way and it gave you a completely different feel about it. Um, the filming of Brie in Fellowship... Because it was done from hobbit height. Everything looked slightly threatening and, um, you know, all the people were extremely big and intimidating and mm. particularly when they go into the prancing pony, you've got all these ex- incredibly tall people with big mugs of beer that they're sloshing about all over the place and potentially bumping Weasels. into the hobbits and exactly everything's a threat. Everything's slightly got that air of being slightly fearful with this. Although. In terms of size, everything looked almost the same, but not quite, because it's dwarf height rather than hobbit height.
0: And a dwarf who can handle himself.
2: Exactly. A dwarf who, you know, is, is confident and in control of his situation. So although he's wary... The, the village and the prancing pony in particular seemed much more um, cosy and, um, if not actively welcoming, then at least uh, like a safe place rather than uh, than somewhere that they were going to get themselves stepped on.
3: Firstly, yeah, that carrot eater bit was—it <laughs> was the best way of him of Peter Jackson to put himself in this film. Oh yeah, yeah. you would go to three, you have to have, which would be carrot, carrot eater's dad. I suppose, <laughs> from a... um, And
0: I am son of <laughs> yeah. Uh I
3: also like, yeah, I liked the especially. I also liked you see Gandalf sort of more. You know, again, it's another way, a way of seeing him where he's not. He doesn't wear his hat. He's just like a, an old man in a cloak,
0: hmm.
3: more, um, just sort of hanging out in a bar, which you, you don't. You haven't really seen all the other times. It's been as, you know, some sort of wise person over in the Shire, just ostensibly for his magic tricks but you know he's the tallest person there and he's always always wearing his hat and has fireworks um and in the white council in the first hobbit film he's you know he doesn't have his hat there but he is he's is an equal rather than in in this he's just a crazy old man
0: <laughs> i mean I, I suppose it reiterates that gandalf has been stirring this particular quest up and trying to get it underway for quite some time before he meets bilbo
3: yeah, it's basically a, a the quest for Erebor bit from the um history of Middle Earth books. There's a you know, basically it's a very a, a short story t- basically telling the background of, of all of of all what happened. Um all right. uh, And basically it's just um you know, yeah, G- Gandalf was afraid that if Sauron when Sauron comes back, um he will align with Smaug and then you know if he's got if he, a, a you know big dragon with the power of the Dark Lord behind him, is not a good, not a good thing. If so you try and kill him before anything happens, then uh, you've got a bit more of a chance, especially in that region where you know that's the the first line of defence. Um, so that that was yeah nice in that bit of sort of reinforce you know introducing that that for Gandalf to, to be the mastermind behind it that's something they fortunately have access to
0: a lot's changed in the past year we were talking in the original reviews about possibility of the Silmarillion and uh, unfinished tales and various other things that's off the table now the Tolkien estate have clamped down on any further use of um, Tolkien's work beyond the, the Hobbit so there will be no references to anything else or any other books within the next film and um and then that's it. They, they don't want anybody else uh, making film adaptations uh, to his work. And you will only be able to um, find out about what happens in those by uh, reading them in book form.
2: I would say that's it for now rather than that's it now, because ultimately I think that the decision will probably take a swift reversal when the family starts running short of cash.
0: Never going to happen. They're one of the richest families in England. Uh, Unle- however, unless the uh, great-great-great-grandson Yancey suddenly wants himself a new yacht plated in gold, he <laughs> might loses
2: then, everything in a card
0: game. Yeah. He might <laughs> then go, what have we still got? Unfinished Tales and The Silmarillion.
3: Does that, does that also only cover films, or is that TV adaptations as well?
0: I, I believe... Uh, they, they don't like technology. They seem to like... <laughs>
3: Um, yeah, I'd, I'd, hopefully it doesn't, because I think the film really would work a lot better as a series mm-hmm. than. Yeah. Um,
0: I think animated would be
3: even better. Yeah, because you yeah, can fix a... the problem of having to have Galadriel in it. Yeah, um,
0: but you know, it's all just something that we mustn't hope for anymore because the Tolkien Estate have said no. So uh, well done. Right, so uh, then the dwarves are yet again chased by wargs, uh, and they're chased all the way to Bayorn's house. Uh, was I the only one expecting Balon to feel a bit more significant?
2: I was.
3: Yeah, I was, but I don't know how much they would have... I mean, if you do it as in the book, that would completely slow down the story. Yeah, let's have um, some tea and honey and... Yeah, and come in two by two, which yeah. takes so long.
0: It's a bit Tom Bombadilly.
3: It is very Tom Bombadilly, yeah.
0: In the um, um, uh, animated version, which I just saw again, uh, the it's not even in it. They didn't even mention it. The eagles yeah. just dropped them at the uh, edge of Mirkwood. But uh, yeah, that Bayon was absolutely terrifying in bear form. Mm. I think I expected him to be a bit taller, a bit more Scandinavian, and a bit more, let me guess, somebody stole your sweet roll, um, <laughs> when he finally turned up in human form.
3: Um, I think it was like okay. the problem I had with it is they're not bees, they're they're not honey bees, they're bumblebees <laughs> bees. But oh well.
0: <laughs> Although Gandalf is now uh, excellently positioned to meet Thrain in the dungeons of Dol Goldor at the beginning of film three, if they're going to go that way,
3: I think I'm sure that even though that's supposed to have already happened, yeah, but, uh, but yeah, I'm sure they're. Going to do that must be something they're going to do because they have he's still out there. They haven't mainly mentioned where he's gone, so it would definitely help Chip Thorin over the edge. And they, they did mention on it was in the in the brief. wasn't it? they did mention that he's he was sighted yeah. uh, near Dunland, so that would be the right area. So I suppose
0: since that was one of the reshoot scenarios that they um, if if it was indeed, then they're kind of flagging it for the next movie. Yeah. It's weird because you kind of, uh, while uh, picking through this, I'm, I'm we're, we're still at the moment up until the end of barrels out of bond. We are still going through the end of film one version one. So uh I think I was just I was reframing it as we were going along and going, "Why right, this is interesting?" Because the Merkwood section feels a lot like Moria even after yeah. they've just come out of Goblin Town. And then when they get captured by the elves, that felt a lot like Lothlorien. And then, then when they went down the river in the barrels, that felt a lot like the Anduin. And then when they fight with the orcs, that felt a lot like Amon Hen. So it's like the first film was was even more of a retread of Fellowship than we first thought.
3: Yeah, I, that would have been a very long film if that had all too it much, too very packed with... Scenes.
0: I've gone back all the way through um, the first film and just sort of highlighted the various scenes and the, a couple of, like, really just a few scenes that have been. I know that their reference to the Battle of Moria when they show you Azog for the first time has been moved from where it was originally in film two. And uh, the Weathertop scenario was new because they needed to show the new Azog. And Thorin versus Azog and the peak at the end, that was uh, added. But even if you take those off, that's really just 12 minutes or so worth of um, maybe 15 tops worth of material. So you're looking at like a four and a half hour film here.
3: Yeah, that's what I was thinking after watching this film. Uh, people said, you know, people keep saying, "Oh, it should have been two films." Well, I was thinking about it after I watched this one that even if I cut out the bits I didn't like from the first and second films, yeah, that's probably about half half an hour, 45 minutes at most. Yeah, so yeah but you can't I I mean yeah it's like you said that you know adding it into the, the uh, extended but I, I think cutting out making it into two films would have made the films far too rushed in the theatrical
0: yeah
3: um, or they'd have to cut out too much of the the white council dogwood stuff, which I think is really good. So,
0: Speaking of rushed, actually, um, this uh, whole first section, which a lot of people tend to say um, the, the second section has a better pace to it, the first section, specifically once they get to the elves, seems very kind of like, come on, come on, we've got a film to finish here. And yeah. um, like Toriel, talking with uh, Thlanduil uh, yeah, it's just like, come on, come on, come on, get it, get it all said quickly, <laughs> and they, they, all of that Shakespearean uh, sense of the elves, um, yeah. it seems to be out the window. Not that it's not bad,
3: it's just much faster. Yeah, I, I did expect Moria to uh, Merkwood to be a lot longer. <laughs> than it yeah, was.
0: there was less of that sort of that It never seemed like they were starving there was no the, Bomber never became uh,
3: unconscious
0: and enchanted what happened to make Bomber fall asleep
3: uh, he fell in a, a river enchanted oh, right. river okay the old enchanted rivers yeah. Um,
0: but yeah now we're, now we're in Mirkwood let's just talk about them how they go in beforehand they're, they're one of the best little moments of the film it's where Bilbo talks to Gandalf you've changed
1: Bilbo Baggins you're not the same hobbit as the one who left the shire
0: I was going to tell you, I found something in the Goblin Tunnels.
1: Found what? What did you find?
0: My courage. Good, well, that's good. You need it. But the delivery on that, and I know that Martin Freeman uh, would do like twenty takes uh, and, and would do each one differently. But that one is just absolutely cracking. Just this, uh, again, it's the ability for Bilbo to to feel two things very strongly at once, which is something his character definitely has over Frodo.
3: I did like that it was the beginning of the the you know effects of the ring that they did put into this film, mm. um, actually. A bit more than they actually did in Lord of the Rings, which is because the Lord of the Rings was, it was sort of done differently. But this is a bit more like sort of like a uh, normal character being overtaken by the ring. In the in the uh, Lord of the Rings, Frodo knows it is a you know a big, a powerful, malign object.
0: He knows what it is, yeah,
3: yeah. So he's he's, he's 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 sort of looking to be affected by it, but he doesn't he doesn't actually see himself being affected by it until the very end mm. when Bilbo. No, well, not that bit. But in the, in Merkwood, he you know he can see that it's a bad influence, but he keeps it anyway.
0: Also, he has to suffer in silence. He's got nobody to talk to. Frodo has Sam, and yeah. uh, Frodo's doing something about it. They're moving towards the mountain to destroy it. Uh, at least um, that they have a task. Bilbo has to the, dealing with the ring is ancillary to the main story for him, yeah. but at the same time, it's taking all of his attention.
2: A lot of the ways that it's shown as well with Bilbo are much more subtle um, than they were with Frodo. I mean, like you said, Chris, because Frodo knew what it was and was kind of geared up to almost brace himself against it, the changes that came in him seemed, to, well, to me at least, to be um, more jarring and uh, in, in bigger steps, if you like. The, yeah. The impact on his behaviour. One minute he'd be fine, and then suddenly there would be a big jump in how he was behaving. Um, with Bilbo, I mean, in part because obviously there's been the gap between the two films. Um, but one of the things that I noticed was he's thinner, and his hair is a little bit thinner, and he he just seemed. And obviously, you know, part of this is because he's walking around the countryside with dwarves and probably not a great deal of food. Um, but it just seems that there is a, a little bit around the edges of the the ring starting to. Dry- Draw on
0: him, mm-hmm. and we've sort of just jumped in here without really talking about the, the, the sense of um, ceremony when uh, when it started up. Where it, it, it seems almost like another year, another Tolkien. Uh, but you know, Sharon gripped my hand when the uh, text first started coming up. It was like, yes, oh my god, we've waited a year, and finally it's over. And I'm now recognizing a bitter annoyance. At the span of time between now and its conclusion that I remember from after I'd seen the two towers, I both at the same time want it to be over and never want it to be over.
3: Yeah, I, it's all slightly different for me. I, I actually want this, I want to see what they've done. Yeah. Rather than with the, the two towers of Return of the King, I, I, I wanted to, I was quite young when that came Yeah, out. you were like okay, a Um, I was, yeah. And it, Come out 2003.
0: Uh, Return of the uh, King was 2003.
3: Yeah. Yes, I was 15. Ooh, um, we feel. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, 23. <laughs> but this, I just want to see. I want to see what. Basically, I want to see what the gap is. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I know there's not much. Technically, not much of the book left. So I want to see what is between the end of the book and the start of the Fellowship. Because there there's anything.
0: is anything. Because, you know, it's still... Uh, I think I miscalculated last year. I thought that there would be seven chapters in this. There's actually only five, which leaves uh, seven in next film, because they left out the actual attack on Lake Town and its aftermath.
2: The thing is, though, you know that which there's going to be... Which pissed off our
0: audience, because everyone went, ah! at the very end. <laughs> they <laughs> we did. wanted to <laughs> see The Desolation of Smog. Ah, but... They were like, like,
2: no, no, don't stop there, don't stop there. Yeah. Mm. Um... Yeah, the, the, although the end of the book has several incidents in it which are absolutely heavy with uh, emotional impact, which Tolkien skips over delightedly um, and doesn't really show you any of. He just tells you what happens and, and leaves you to fill all the blanks in yourself. So uh, I think a lot of three is going to be um, the expansion of the uh, 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 the emotional um, consequences of, of what is left to happen, which, as you say, is not a great deal.
0: To that end, considering what we like, I'd imagine the three of us, then it has the potential to be the best of the three.
2: Mm. I would say so.
0: And, like, I mean, even, like, a clear winner over the other the other two, uh, In insofar as it, it, it sort of always goes back and forth for me with the uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy. So there's even times when I like Rishon the King best because of the um, the sheer wall of emotion it represents. But this one coming up could feel the most like lord of the rings and thus could feel the best for me in simplistic terms but we'll see in a year let's get back to this film uh so yeah they enter into Merkwood. gandalf leaves them and in the book doesn't isn't this like him until the end of the book he's gone from this stage
3: yep and like, also he leaves basically says oh i need to go when you get to Mirkwood uh and we basically get to the gate oh i'm going then Yep. At least, I, I did like it in this film, they made it a bit more of a, oh, I've seen something that's very bad, I need to now sort that out. Yeah, um, I've got that very needs to take priority. List. Rather than just tropesing off to kill the dragon, which is important in the scheme, you know, in the yeah. in his plans, it's just, it's not as important as Sauron.
0: I think it was a it's simple in this case of, look, if we have Gandalf with them the whole time, then they have answers to all their questions, and they have someone who will aid them in, in everything. So, Tolkien, both times, uh in fellowship and in this went wow let's just get rid of gandalf because he's, you know he is the answer to all the questions
3: yeah. i also like in the film that it was a bit you know he was ambiguous if you didn't wreck because he didn't I, from what I remember he didn't mention it was Sauron and he just saw the eye and if you don't if you didn't tweak it was just like oh that he's seen something but like oh that's Sauron on symbol yeah it was, uh, but yeah i, I like that
0: Okay so when they're going through Mirkwood uh this felt the most like um, Fangorn for me it felt very setty and very um uh, like uh Moria as well not like a natural forest but then it's kind of supposed to there's the, the delirium sets in and it's supposed to feel ethereal and uh and not like, like surreal
3: Yeah it did. I I think that mostly, like I seem like it was that that sort of Valley they were in at the beginning, you know, just after the Maury a bit, where it sort of panned down to a, a set. Yeah, um, so I didn't really find, I thought Mirkwood was, you know, yeah, so it was a set, but it was, and it's, you know, something interesting and something that could happen rather than like like Fangorn was. It's, you know, it's obviously a set, but it looks, it's interesting enough, filled with interesting objects that you know that you can overlook that, yeah, rather than just. In the book, it's I think just basically just tree, you know, tall trees with gaps in the middle, the into darkness, which you can't really do in a film. Cause that would just be I mean, it would look nice for a very a short amount of time, but then it looks like yeah, you just done a cheap set. <laughs> I, did, I quite I, I like the uh, the path when it was sort of multi-levelled, so it looks yeah like it was, it was used up the used the uh, the set well. It looked like it, you know, the the, the path snaked all the way around and came up. It looked believable enough.
2: This is this was another bit actually where I thought it it echoed the first trilogy beautifully, but with enough uh, slight changes to um, uh, to give a sense of the same world but at a very different time. Um, I mean, Merkwood. If you remember, me talking about um, the Hobbit uh, Spectrum game. Merkwood was the bit that always used to kill me. Literally, because the spiders would always get me. I never saw them coming, and I, I couldn't work out how to um, how to not be defeated by them. Um, the part with spiders hiding in the trees, and obviously you've got sort of echoes of Shelob there, yeah. and um, you know, with all the the cobwebs everywhere that keeps catching at um, at Bilbo as he's he's running around, and obviously you've got the the naming of Sting that comes at that part. And again, I just, I thought they did the echoing really well. It wasn't laid on too thick. It was just enough to give a sense of the connections without making you feel like, oh yeah, I remember this bit in the first trilogy. I wish I was watching it right now, which sometimes when in sequels, directors try to do things that hark back to earlier films yeah. sometimes it can come off that way a little bit and I think they th- there was none of that in this or at least if there was it was very little but uh, one thing that I noticed actually about the, the Bilbo's use of the ring when he puts the ring on obviously he can understand what the spiders are saying um, which was really creepy just to suddenly realize that this chittery noise that's effectively meaningless has suddenly morphed into speech but it's done so so gradually that all of a sudden, they're saying things, and you can understand them. And mm. oh, oh, how did that happen? When he took the ring off, that lingered for a little while. Yeah, um, mm. there were a couple of words that um, that the spider said after he'd taken the ring off that he could still, you know, were still in English. He could still understand them, and I thought that was a really nice way of showing. Nice. Terrible word to use in this particular context. Yeah, your I'm talking about- will be in touch. Well, more the fact, I'm talking about evil rings and giant spiders here. <laughs> nice shouldn't really enter into effective? it. Effective? Uh, yes, effective. Um, but a, a good way of showing that the, the ring is starting to have a, a more lasting effect on Bilbo. It's not yeah. just when he's wearing it, it's, um, it's causing him to behave in a, a way that he wouldn't ordinarily do so. And another thing is as well, if you, you look at, um, the pattern of how the ring is acquired by various people, the way that they behave um, about it and in terms of of doing what they they end up doing in order to maintain possession of it is often reinforced by the fact that they have to fight to get it or keep it or, you know, it's not they never seem to be able to just put it down to look or anything like that. Bilbo happened across the ring by pure chance. I, I mean, it's entirely possible that the, the ring had intended it in some way, but I think it's it's specifically stated that it, it hadn't really expected to be picked up by a hobbit. Ah, Gandalf but,
0: maintains Bilbo was meant to find it.
2: Well, indeed. He is directly contradicting Gal- uh, Galadriel there, but anyway, that's beside the point. Um, but because Bilbo, after that, has this riddle competition... I think I
3: think you know, know best, best. Greybeard. Greybeard. <laughs>
2: Um, because he has this uh, uh, the, the riddles game with Gollum, that kind of reinforces in his mind that he won the ring, that he, through his own quick wit and cleverness, it is actually his by rights. Um, and obviously, Gollum had the whole thing about it was you know it was his because it was his birthday and therefore he deserved it, which neatly smooths over the fact that the reason he has it is because he murdered Deagol, yeah. and then he murdered
0: the f- and Bilbo stole
2: exactly. But he stole, he hid it. He He'd never told Gandalf about it, which would have been a really, really sensible and smart thing to do. Um, but now he's actually had um, an incident where he has had to physically fight in order to maintain possession of it. And you can see it in his face and in the way he behaves and how protective of it his actions are becoming. That every time he has to do anything like this, it's going to reinforce for him. This is mine. I've done something to maintain keeping this with me and therefore I deserve it because I've fought for it
0: mm. Isildur um, won it in triumph in a victory after slaying uh uh, so on in battle and thus uh, made the whole grand kingly gesture of this is mine and I shall go and deal with it naturally no better not destroy it this is now a symbol of my divine right to yeah, be king
2: absolutely the, the fact that it came to him because he wildly and luckily flailed a busted sword at somebody is yeah. totally beside the point
0: and uh, sam when he uh, took it off frodo was uh, protecting it, trying to keep it from uh, falling into the wrong hands. And he was the only person who took it for entirely altruistic reasons, aside from Frodo, who was given it for a very specific purpose to destroy.
2: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, for Frodo, it's all tied in with this idea that he, he you know, it's, it's not it's just all the ring, It's
0: all about him. The... It's all about Frodo. He's yeah, well, the important one. He was well, chosen.
2: Exactly. It's, it's, tied in with the idea that this was his responsibility and, and, you know, this was a task that was given to him and everybody who talks to him about it reinforces that. Yeah. You were the only person who could possibly have done this, Frodo. Now, for a little and hobby... Everyone's crying
0: at the Black Gate,
2: Frodo's dead! What about Sam? He's the one who's
0: actually <laughs> brave!
2: Yeah, but the, but the fact that Frodo is is this sort of he's grown up in the Shire, and I know Bilbo says that he's he's still in love with the Shire, but he does have that Tookish impulse for adventure and being told... You're the one. Here's this great responsibility, it's aren't you prophecy. marvelous? For somebody who's who's never had anything like that before, that in it in itself is extremely seductive. And I love the way they weave this in that the ring uses all of these personal insecurities and um, you know secret wishes of things that people could have and ways that they they want to grow and and um, desires that they want either for themselves or for their their descendants. In the case of um, of Isildur and, and ultimately Denethor as well um, but it uses all of these little things to basically make people do what it wants them to do
0: mm. uh, Three more things from uh, Merkwood before we move on to the elves uh, One, the busted up road in this old forest actually reminded me of Return to Oz mm. Anybody? <laughs> As obscure as this gets, uh, this is uh, a film set many, many years after The Wizard of Oz, where a forest has sprung up around uh, the original Yellow Brick Road, and it's just this knackered old ruined path in the middle of the forest running through. But uh, just it, it is now beyond purpose, because uh, it's been pushed aside, almost, by the landscape. And that kind of felt like Mirkwood was rejecting the path itself.
3: Return to Oz is the one with the the metal soldier person and Jack Skellington, isn't
0: it? Uh, Yeah. Um, TikTok
3: and uh, his name is Jack Pumpkinhead. So fucking much better than The Wizard of Oz. Agreed. I love it. Um, It is a dark,
0: dark. proper sequel. Uh, But it it also follows up with, with interesting psychological implications that Dorothy had just Uh, been delusional and dreamed everything that happened in Wizard of Oz and it leaves you ever so slightly uneasy that that actually might be the case Uh, okay two more things Uh, one um, were that all of the creepy crawlies and spiders and things as well as looking like Sheila but she reminded me of the horrible denizens of Skull Island in King Kong so yes. they have a lot of practice with that, and uh, as I recall, wasn't uh, Guillermo del Toro most interested in doing the spiders because he likes creepy crawlies? <laughs> um, and uh, but also Bilbo's uh, scenario with with the centipede where he attacks it, or centipede or baby spider or something, and he goes, <laughs> and he's like, kill it with fire, and he just <laughs> his hacking it to death and then going mine at the screen into the camera. Um, it's a, it's a, a brilliant sort of statement of uh, of the the power this thing is already starting to have on him.
3: Yeah, yeah, that was a good scene. Yeah.
0: As we're going through this, have a think about whose film this is, because I haven't actually uh, written this down. But remember, we were talking when we did the Lord of the Rings films, and I said uh, Two Towers was Aragorn's film, and Josh maintained, and I completely agree with him that it is also um, Gollum and Sméagol that is their showcase uh, it's it's part of Aragorn's path towards becoming a king um, but it's just this incredible character study of Smeagol and Gollum um, and uh, Fellowship most definitely Frodo with some Gandalf in there as well Return of the King, Frodo Sam, Eowyn yeah. she's definitely pretty prominent in it and uh, film one of this most definitely Bilbo's film, some Gandalf in there as well film 2 whose film is this
2: to an extent i would say thorin
0: to an extent though
2: i i don't he think has half could...
0: an arc in it because this is he half uh, yeah. when he starts to really come out of his shell and start talking it's um well actually it, it's mostly when he starts talking to thranduil because he gets to make a decision and it's a bad one
2: I don't know if you can really allocate it to any one person. I mean, it, frankly, the—I mean—the arc that caught my attention the most was Keeley.
0: Yeah, the arc that caught my attention the most was Toriel, and she's made up. <laughs> I mean, they're all made up, but she's the <laughs> creation of Fran and Pepper <laughs> and Peter, and uh, uh, and her arc and, and with Keeley's was the most eye-catching and unexpected for me,
3: at least. It's like the beginning of Bard's story as well.
0: Yeah, it's uh, Bard was definitely prominent. But that's the thing. That, that that makes it uneasy because you're focusing on uh, a character who isn't given any characterization in the book at all. A character who isn't in the book at all. A character who is in the book but is hardly one of the major starring characters. So who else really is carrying this thing? It's not necessarily a major weakness but it does make it stand out from the other four so far.
2: See I think I uh, I know what you mean about saying that the uh, certainly the earlier films have this strong storyline that focuses around one or two or maybe even three people. Yeah. Um but I I really do see them all as ensemble pieces. I I don't um you know I've I've never felt that any particular character is uh, neglected in favour of others. I mean, you, you could just as easily argue that Two Towers is Faramir's film. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, You know, you, you could just as easily argue that Return of the King is Denethor's. It's it's not focused enough uh, on, on any single person, I think, to, to say that, um, that this is weaker for not
0: having okay. that. Okay, but all of the four films we've had so far, it is at least fair to say that there are strong arcs within the film Delineated for the specific characters that we've already mentioned
2: yeah, in this I, I one film that.
0: there is less strong arcs because it feels like if it is the beginning of Thorin's film if, if, if film 1 was going to be all about Bilbo and film 2 was going to be all about Thorin that actually makes sense
2: I think for me I have a tendency to be influenced by what appears to be the voice of the closing song
0: Yeah, Oh, yeah.
2: And this one, the end song, felt very much to me like Bards.
0: So in the first one, it's Arwen doing May It Be. In the second one, it's uh, Gollum doing Gollum's song, or Smeagol doing uh, Gollum's song. Third one, um, Galadriel. It's Galadriel, but she's
2: singing about
3: Frodo.
0: About Frodo. Fourth one, Hobbit, is actually, I I said that I was starting to like it at the end of the uh, first Hobbit podcast. I now love that version of the Song of the Lonely Mountain because it's Bilbo joining the Song of the Dwarfs
1: Far over the misty mountains rise Leave us standing upon the height What was before We see once more is our kingdom, a distant light, fiery mountain beneath the moon. The words unspoken will be there soon for home.
0: I was saying, wouldn't it have been better with Leonard Cohen's deep accent, you know, deep sort of throaty bass? No, it's Bilbo.
3: I do like it, but I don't like this worrying trend of having guitars.
2: guitars are a worrying trend.
3: <laughs> well, they're, they're a worrying trend when you compare them with the, the songs of the last the, the, uh, Lord of the Rings films, which don't have guitars. It's not more, really it, a Middle-earth
2: instrument, Yeah, it? it
3: makes it feel at more like... At least make it a, a lute. The problem I have the, the the Lord of the Rings songs feel like they're sung in world, where these feel a more like pop songs at the end. Especially yeah. this one. But I, I, I actually get... Yeah, now, having listened to it for a year, I do like the end of The Hobbit. The, the hobbit song uh the unexpected journey song a lot more hmm. just don't like the clap machine <laughs> it's just uh, and i like the first 30 seconds of this song a Ed Sheeran. lot yeah yeah. i like the first 30 seconds and then it gets into guitar and harmonies which i, I don't think is as good but
2: it, it did sound much more contemporary than we've um, we've come to expect i suppose and alex you did point out that the uh, the first trilogy has the closing songs are all sung by female voices um and these have been male voices so
0: far i suspect this is my prediction for the third and final film it will be another third male voice and it will be from the perspective of the regret of thorin So they get captured by the Mirkwood elves, and everybody cheers when Legolas turns up. Did everybody Not
2: everybody! Because <laughs> my first thought was, my god, he's aged.
3: Yeah, <laughs> <Glad> <laughs> up. the gears have been kind. Yeah, the, the elves get skinnier as they get older. The... <laughs>
2: yes, they they actually retreat in wrinkles, <laughs> shadows,
0: and Look, things. when he's but living no. in Merkwood, all he's living off is wild boar. Then he gets to go. I <laughs> know, oh, well, he came from Merkwood. I suppose yeah. he worked off a few pounds on the way. The <laughs> the largest, maybe. Fairly, yeah.
2: it's the ring hanging around. It's making him look drawn and haggard. But no. Um, but one of one of the things that I kind of felt about the presence of Legolas. Mm-hmm. Was that it, it? Really wasn't necessary. If there was any one thing that I could point out and say, you really didn't need to do that. Toriel, fine. I got no no real problem with the, the creation of that character. It's it's not as if it's unusual for them to expand on the next to non-existent female roles. Well, you get
0: Galadriel in film one. But- Toriel in films two and three. Yeah. And I'm, yeah, I'm massively it's gratified to be in for three that. Yeah, well,
2: but, I mean...
0: I suspect she'll be in three. Yeah,
3: she has to be. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, Chris, Alex has already sort of agreed with me on this one. Bard looks a bit like Orlando Bloom did in Pirates of the Caribbean anyway.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, so girl. he's
2: kind of already there... You don't need him again.
0: I, I was I was actually lo- really looking forward to uh, Luke Evans because this is ultimately the closest, the most Aragorn-y character. If you uh, if you take the ranger side of uh, of his his personality um, away from the kingly side, while Thorin is playing Boromir and Aragorn at the same time, he did not charm me in the same way that Vigo did.
2: No, I know what you mean. Although I think he I, was very I earnest. Think- he was and i really did like the way they um they played up the whole um uh, 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 of the leaders the resistance didn't have he was the greatest kind of thing you know what i mean he, he seemed mm. to have this real feeling of of concern about the the town and the fact that yeah. it's been um you without know.
0: seeming like a naive bleeding heart
2: yeah absolutely but the, um what's he called, the Regent Stephen Fry's character? The Master
0: of Lake Town.
2: The Master of Lake Town, sorry. Where did I get Regent from? I, I not mind ignore you that. You might be
0: thinking of the uh, uh, Prince Regent in Blackadder, which this guy reminded me of a character Possibly.
2: from. Possibly. Well, At least I, one. I, like I said, it, it was impossible for me to look at him and not think why has somebody put Lord Melcher in charge of Lake <laughs> Town?
0: Specifically from Blackadder 2.
2: <laughs> Indeed.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, but Bard really seems to have, um, it, it bothers him that his people are being, um, you know, dragged into the ground by this guy. And, it, like you say, that comes across without making him seem naive and silly.
0: But if you are stepping into, uh, even albeit the symbolic shoes of, uh, Aragorn, Vega Mortensen is magic and has an immense presence to him. So that is some huge boots to fill. So um, yeah, Luke Evans was up against it. He, he didn't do badly at all, especially since uh, Orlando Bloom. Uh, you know what? I didn't mind seeing Orlando Bloom again. I quite liked it. I liked the links to it. What, the person I was not happy to see was CGI Orlando Bloom, who <laughs> tried his best to ruin the oh, first yes. three films we
2: remember him. with his
0: antics <laughs> and bouncing around, around like a big flops. floppy <laughs> rag doll. And he was in this flopping around like a big. I was like, yeah, <laughs> you and your brother turned up again. <laughs> I can't stand your brother. It's like going on a date and he brings his, his asshole brother with him. Yeah, <laughs> so I, you're I, sitting down, you're about to tuck into your steak together, you're chatting away, and then a CGI Orlando comes up and goes, <laughs> 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 sorry. <laughs> like, could you just could you just give him some more money, Tends turns to go to the else? bar. <laughs> Carry on, sorry.
3: Anyway, um, yeah, I, I thought, I, I actually quite liked having Regulus in, because um, I thought Orlando really did act a bit better than he used to. Um, well, that's his first role. But um, I, I'll say, if you're working from a, a book perspective, uh, Legolas is superfluous to the story. But if you're working from a film perspective, it does not make sense that he's not there.
0: Yeah,
3: because he should be there. I suppose from the defender
0: could say, "My son, Legolas, who is away right now."
3: Yeah, he's only not there because Tolkien forgot or didn't didn't think of that character when he wrote the Hobbit, which, course, and yeah. didn't even bother to mention. The, who, who the king of the elves was, but. Yeah.
1: Um,
3: yeah, so I, I, and I, I, I did like the facts, and they put put in the bit with Gloin, and then you saw a picture of Gimli.
0: Yeah, <laughs> what's this <laughs> twisted mute <mutant> child?
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: He will be your future boyfriend. I'd have a care, <laughs> young man. It was actually nice, because a lot of, I could, I could tell a lot of our audience was like, my son, Gimli, and they went, ooh, that's Gimli. And was like, yes, you didn't know, Gimli, son of Glo- oh, Forget it.
3: Can you not tell the fact that he looks exactly the same? And he's carrying
0: his walking acts
3: for God's sake. I think it's quite weird that he looks that, that, you know, that he's got, he basically looks exactly the same, but um, Oin looks like um, John Reese Davis a lot. Mm. It's really freaky. Yeah. So I, I suppose they, if they choose, chose that act, it was like, oh, that's Gimli again. Yeah. So I had to make it a bit of a difference. But yeah, I, I, I also like the um, uh, Philly, all the, all the weapons, which, you know, yeah. it's all. Because it reinforces that despite um, being not exactly warriors, most of them, they are still dwarves and they have a lot of weapons.
0: That also uh, echoes (laughs) the bit where Legolas uh, has to hand all his weapons over at uh, Edoras, and there's loads of them. And uh, Actually, not just Legolas, but Aragorn and Gimli as well. They're completely kitted out.
2: Specifically the fact that it's Feely, though, um, that does uh, in a small way reinforce the idea of him... He's effectively Thorin's heir at this point.
0: Yeah, that's not really made clear in the uh, uh, the, the films or the book, but uh, Keely and Feely are the closest relations and kin to Thorin, so effectively if Thorin were to die, they would inherit his throne.
2: Until he has a son. But, I mean, he actually says that to him at one point, though, doesn't yeah. he? When they're about to leave Lake Town, he says, one day you'll understand when this comes to you.
3: Ah. Still wasn't made a huge deal of, but yeah. No. Um, yeah, they don't really. They really should have mentioned that when they met up. It's really kind good. of important. It informs yeah. on
0: their characters. They are there bodyguarding him as
3: well. Yeah, well, they don't really mention why most of them are there. But well, Barlin's there because he's in the prologue, so obviously yeah. they you know know each other before, and they don't re- they don't really mention why the others are there ex- except for they are the ones that answered.
0: The more I watch these films, the more I
3: love Ken Stott's performance as uh, Barlin, By the way, he is wonderful. Yeah, I mean he is a character in The Hobbit. I think they made him more of a character to the. They've seen the Fellowship more, have more of an emotional impact. Yeah. yeah. You see, now we've met him, and um, so that's why I think at the end of the third film they're going to have a bit of him going off cause yeah. just to moria because just that that might be the tie. I mean, I know there's rumours that Legolas is going to be the tie-in, but you know, even even more than just being in it, so i, I hope not really. Yeah. I'm hoping it's more.
2: The way they've developed his character, though, it's uh, it's informs in a crucial way on how Thorin behaves. Ultimately, it emphasizes the fact that Thorin is really too young at mm. the moment to be a kid. Or at least, maybe young's not quite the right word. He's too inexperienced,
0: and he doesn't He's have, too ruled by raw emotion as well.
2: Absolutely. He doesn't have the necessary diplomacy to be able to say to Thranduil... Okay, I really may not be happy about this, but clearly we need to um, be working together at this point instead of spitting on his hand and walking (laughs) off. Um, I'm (laughs) going to my
0: room. (laughs)
2: Yeah, indeed. Um, But... um, I think that's uh, something that that has helped really to distinguish Thorin from Aragorn and point out that he's not just doing the same thing because Aragorn would not behave in this way. He actually had the understanding that you have to negotiate with people and sometimes you have to keep quiet and sometimes you have to let other people make the decisions. Uh, both whereas...
0: deal with their grave responsibility in different ways.
2: Exactly. And having Balin there, who does have the diplomacy, but also obviously doesn't have the responsibility because he's not the prince. He's not the one that everybody's looking to for leadership. He's an advisor. Um, but it, it does um, kind of create that uh, light and shade relationship very well.
0: Yeah. The extended edition of An Unexpected Journey, I'll briefly talk about here, because obviously we'll be talking about it in two whole years from now, but I do want to at least mention a couple of things. One uh, is that at the beginning you get to see, because this informs upon Thorin's relationship with uh, Thranduil, uh, Thrall, his grandfather, offered to... It, it's There's a sequence at the beginning where... Thranduil is led before him it's when uh, Bilbo's talking about the brilliance of Erebor and how awesome it was and how many gems and things there were and he offers him these white jewels and, Th- and Thranduil's like whoa look at these, these are the best jewels I've ever seen I totally want them and he reaches out his hand and then they slam the box down like Pretty Woman and he goes ah, <laughs> and Thrall stops short of basically dancing from foot to foot and giving him the finger and going, ah. It is the most petty, pathetic state of relations I've ever seen. He is literally taunting a potential ally. It's pathetic. Yeah, ultimately, you're kind of with him a bit more, Thranduil, uh, when Thranduil sort of uh, watching the dwarves exiting uh, a burning Erebor and going, "Nah, not bringing my men down there to die. You guys are assholes."
3: He also went even more when they included that face scar thing. Um, so I assume it's like a, a scar that he's just. Yeah, that was scary. <laughs> yeah, um but that, yeah, that, just, just that, that one, uh, just like few seconds of that happening, it's like, okay, that's why he didn't go in then, cause he's already been burnt, you know, his face has been half burnt off yeah. by i a dragons, so obviously he doesn't want to go in again. Also, arrows and fire does not mix, so. <laughs> of course, yeah.
0: But, yeah, that's it, that, the other thing, that, that, because the elves are so beautiful and so, um, stern and so vain and so, um, statuesque, you forget most of the time that they've not only lived for a long, long time, they've been through the wars. So this showing that, okay, underneath this, I like my, one half of my face is meatloaf. Um, and he has, must have some sort of enchantment on him so that he doesn't look hideous and t- scare the other elves away.
2: They are big with the glamours.
0: Yeah. Mm. But that was, uh, that was a really great, um, it's, it's it's made me wary of him as a character, especially his uh, treatment of the orc that's coming up as well.
2: Mm, that whole segment, actually, reinforced for me the idea that sometimes you need to be a bit cautious about these beautiful and semi-divine beings that appear to be so noble and kind and good, but actually they can uh, take this... Uh, is neutrality even really the word? This determination not to become embroiled in anybody else's fight... Um, to the extreme of of almost being evil, that that you know that they will sometimes quite happily turn their backs when they could assist Cold. without yeah. great investment and effort from themselves. Um, but then again, I suppose it's it's the dwarves do that to an extent, or at least the way they're perceived by others um, is is often as being totally insular and focused on their own problems.
0: Yeah. Or indeed hot-tempered and, and so quick to anger that they will shut off all their other possibilities.
2: I, I would ascribe that more to the way people see men as behaving, actually, because men are perceived as being quite a young race that are impulsive and can't see past the end of their own nose. Yeah. Um, the dwarves, I think it's, it's more this harbouring resentment that will remain for generations and generations and generations. Frankly, they've all got flaws.
0: Yeah. But uh, Thorin should have said yes at this point.
2: He yeah. should. We? He
0: he opens them up for so much more hardship and uh,
3: uh, ruin. Over because the book doesn't doesn't have that bit. Of in.
0: course the yeah. But um, I, I, was it actually in the book the uh, the the bargain or was that just? Now nah, we're going to put you
3: in the cells. The whole elf bit in the book is not very fleshed out. Yeah, so, so they, 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 just get, they med- get
2: imprisoned and then they sneak out. That's about rather it.
0: like yeah. Well,
3: they just they just say <laughs> they. <laughs> Yeah, so they don't even mention his name, it's just like the elven king. Yeah. like, mm. so, yeah, that's descriptive. Um so yeah, just I think adding that in just, make, just obviously makes Van a, a deeper character than the no character is that's in the book.
0: Yeah.
2: But but yeah. I was very suspicious of his behaviour with the captured orc.
0: Yeah. He, ch- he chopped his head off almost before he could say too much. Mm. Mm. Although he did do this awesome samurai flourish afterwards, <laughs> which yeah. was kind of like, oh, that was totally worth it. You have nothing to fear.
1: Tell us what you know, and I will set you free. You had orders to kill them. Why? What is stored in Oakenshield to you? A dwarf. Rant. Never be king. King? There is no king under the mountain, nor will there ever be. None would dare enter Erebor whilst the dragon lives. You know nothing. Your world will burn. What are you talking about? Speak! Now time has come again. My master serves the one. Do you understand now, Elfling? Death is upon you. The flames of
0: war... Are upon you <laughs> we're missing of course uh, Turiel herself and Keely, and the um the the, the little glimmer of uh, rom- connection and romance that occurred there I, I, I from all of the reviews that I read, there was a very sort of disparaging oh there's Keely gets to do a bit of stuff but it uh, it doesn't really amount to anything and it's, it's kind of pointless and I, this turned out to be one of the things I liked most about this movie. Um, because of the significance which is lost on most people of interspecies romance this is these these two characters are from two warring clans they They should hate each other by all rights, but they found some sort of connection, and uh, it it seemed to come from a mutual uh, at least respect of one another to begin with
2: yeah, and I think it it does sort of echo the um the Baron and Luthien and obviously the Aragorn and Arwen relationship as well, that, that yeah. there are ways to um, cross the boundaries between these races and, and that although in this world they do seem very delineated and very separate ultimately it, I mean I've said this before they're all really kind of shades of, of the same species because otherwise they wouldn't be able to breed. You wouldn't have half-elves if they were completely separate beings. Yeah. Um, and um, it, it kind of it shows you where the links are going to come. It's it's in the individuals who meet and are so drawn to each other that they can't maintain the lines of separation between you're a dwarf I'm an elf it's a dream it's not going to work. Um, which Again, there was a lot of um, little references in the language to that. Um, you are elf kind, I am mortal, it was a dream. Which is one of my favourite speeches in the whole thing. So I was really pleased that they uh, they had a little echo of that.
1: Yeah.
2: I suppose it does sort of play on the idea that um, that she only goes for Keely because he's tall and empirically attractive and, you know there was no danger that she was going to go for Bomber
0: or <laughs> somebody with Bomber?
2: that's that's kind of what I'm saying you know why wouldn't she be drawn I'm
0: sure she like a bit of buffer <laughs>
2: I did really, really like that. And obviously you, it means you get that nice moment where um, uh, Keeley gets to reflect on his his mother and the, um, the fact that there's somebody waiting for him back home.
0: See, these lovely little moments, I want, I want really one for every single one of the dwarves. Just one bit that makes you go, there's more to them than just what they look like. And obviously what they look like informs upon their character. One that we noticed in the appendices was actually Biffa, the one who can't speak uh, in... Uh, the tongues of men and hobbits. He can only speak dwarfish now. He's the one with the bit of axe in his head. And, um, I, I thought he was mute the first time I, I saw him because he hardly said anything. Um, he's, he's kind of, um, a little bit battle crazy because of the, uh, the damage that it's done to his brain. Uh, but there's, uh, Jackson mentioned there was a little bit they had to cut out, which I wish they'd left in, which showed a little clip of Biffa who was a toy maker like making a little, a delicate little bird toy while they were in the cave wait, before the goblins turned up or at some opportune moment. And just a little moment like that, just to show that they are more than just what they look like, I would take one of them in favor of any of the action sequences that have occurred so far.
2: One thing I would really like to see in the third part, actually, and I have no idea if they intend to do this, but some... Given that we had that little clip from Bree at the beginning uh, of Thorin meeting Gandalf, um, some little snippets of backstory of how the dwarves came to be on this journey, yeah. why they in particular responded to Thorin's call when nobody else did, that would be wonderful.
0: Because it's not really made clear in the um, uh, the films either that there is that li- they're little family groups, Biffa-Boffa-Bomba, all brothers, Keeley feely brothers, but also uh, kin to Thorin, Balin and Dwalin, brothers but also uh they they were soldiers for thorin uh and and there's a cast to them some of them uh from the slightly more ragged end and some of them are a bit more sort of well to do and some of them are a bit more warlike and they're from all, all over and there's they tended to they tend to sort of bunch them together so that um it's almost like they've got buddies in the actual filmmaking so that they will stay with their brothers and they know what's going on and you you watch all the actors um, you know, chatting with each other and, and sort of really bonding in their in their little family groups. And there's a whole load of stuff going on that we're not really party to because that's not part of the plot. And that bothers me because I want that to be part of the plot. I like character development. You may have noticed that about me.
3: I can definitely see a, a, a big splodge of character development for the Battle of the Five Armies because that yeah. is, you know... A lot of dwarves alone at that stage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if they if it follows roughly the book, they're gonna you know they're gonna be besieged for a bit. So definitely, yeah. the introspection can happen then. Um, the, for the, the romance, I really like the romance bit here. I think it go, goes off <laughs> later. But I I did there, there's also echoes of uh the quite quite great relationship between Nicholas and Gimli, which is not really. But you know, it's like a yeah. start off as, like, oh, they're, they're, they're you know, they hate each other, and Legolas just not... Again, like,
0: interspecies.
3: <laughs> and yeah, then they, they're very, very good friends, in quotes, uh, at the end, and but couldn't really do anything about it, you know, outside of, of the books, so I think. Course, you know, yeah.
0: Well, ultimately, um, the, the the Frodo and Sam thing, it doesn't matter that they didn't get married, that connection is incredibly strong and undeniable, yeah, there there are various different... I mean, even Aragorn and Boromir had something going on where there was this sort of unspoken bond among uh, men, bond among warriors, kind of a bromance, but a little bit more understated. Oh, the whole Legolas and Gimli thing being put forwards here in a much more, let's face it, twilighty, uh, appealing and understandable Romeo and Juliet way uh, for, for the masses. It's, it's, it's quite a good way of doing what they couldn't do before. Um, then there's the barrel scene, which a lot of people hate. What did you think, Chris?
3: I okay. I liked the way that the barrels were deployed, which is better than the book. That's so the first che- ten I'm...
0: seconds was awesome. Well,
3: <laughs> I, like, oh, this looks full. I'm not going to check it. I've just been. I'm just told to shove this out the door, so I'm not going to check it. I'm just shove it out the door. And uh, the, pro- the, the only problem I have with the actual barrel scene is pedantry. <laughs> in that head when, barrels, head. when when the barrels go off the um the first waterfall yeah. they all fill up with water and they they sink yeah yeah <laughs> but i i did quite like you talking about like character moments i did quite like the 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 um, bomber bit where he actually gets to do some fighting
0: turn into a little tank
3: yeah i, I did quite like that just to and the way it sort of progressed downwards i, I quite like that but there was a was a bit of a, a rubber elves again, but yes. I did like the fact. Sliding around here, yeah. I did like the fact that he was a you know like the the, the elvish places we've had previously are impregnable, mm. and this is just like oh they just they attacked and came with the war and killed elves, which except for Helm's Deep didn't didn't happen at all. Yeah, and Battle of the Lost Lights, but um, so it made it feel you know sort of like more it was a, a place more on the edge. So it does sort of ex- it again it sort of explains why they just completely shut it down afterwards because it's like this shouldn't have happened and it doesn't happen and we just you know want to be insular and not do anything um so i did i did quite like how that that played out so i did like overall i did like it it's just that you know suspend this fully for movies mm.
0: it did feel very video gamey and very theme park ridey but yeah. um i i don't I, it, it wasn't see watching goblin town again the uh you know when I, when I first got it again on uh, Blu-ray, I thought, ah, this is the bit that really I could probably have done without. But watching it again today, I'm like, I like, kind of like Goblin Town. There's not one bit of um, uh, Unexpected Journey, even Radagast, who's now grown on me, and wouldn't you know it, Lyra adores Radagast. Yep. I told her, oh, dude, Radagast in the second film, and she went, yay! It's like, oh, you like him. But, I yep. even like Radagast now.
3: Well, yeah, I... I those are fine for the first film. So I, the only bit I still don't like from the first film is the uh, the rock and sock and robots.
0: <laughs> yeah, fortunately that's quite quick. But <laughs> yeah. um it's, but,
3: it's but just the false, it's just false power. I really don't. Hmm. It's like it's like oh, well, they're going to be crushed under the knocks. It's they've got two other films. Um, but that that yeah, it's a it's a like, five minute scene. It's fine. And the, this one, there are two. There were two. I can't remember what they are now.
0: <laughs> but the way it was shot uh, uh, differentiates... I mean, you, you can hold it in stark comparison to the, the way that they went down the Anduin and the, and the boats in the, yeah. the first one. And in the uh, the book and in the original version of Fellowship, they were going to be attacked there. And obviously in Bowels Out of Bond, they weren't attacked in the book. And what would otherwise just have been a bunch of dwarves in a bunch of barrels floating sedately down a river with zero tension at all. Uh, I'm not sure necessarily that would have been better or worse, but it really depends what they were trying to do and, and from the sounds of it they pissed off so many people that I don't actually think it was really worth it I like it a bunch of other people might like it but um, I think this was just too much for, for many people
3: I, 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 I thought it was fine I, the, with the book it, it makes the L seem completely unprepared it's like yeah. oh they've gates oh we won't do anything then Um which sort of as opposed to later, let's
0: pursue them. We're quite yeah, fast. I mean, We've got at bows. Least,
3: at least to the edge of our our land, which they do. Um, but cause then he's just sort of later on in the book when they uh, battle the five armies. it's Like, but you didn't want to go out of your ha- out of your homeland then, but yeah. you're doing it now.
0: Well, there's gold now.
3: Oh yeah, but still. <laughs> I I, thought
0: I think the elves let them go in the book and just sort of uh, let them go get their gold then we'll turn up when they've got their gold
3: I don't think the elves were enough of a character to have any motivation in the book I
0: think it was just an episode which Bilbo had to get them out of again it was written for seven year olds but but yeah, this is the, one of those bits that grates with all the sort of sluddy around and shooty and 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 sw- swinging about the place. And I, I think you know, in future watchings, I'll, it'll be enjoyable enough. Possibly the equivalent, actually, of the Warg fight in Two Towers.
3: Yeah, yeah, I I have mellowed to that a lot since I first watched it. So. <laughs> um, I but I did like the way it was shot. I like that there was just a camera they trapped in a river and it was just floating down. I quite like the yeah. shots from that cause it just looked like you were in in you know right in the middle of everything. Um, which I don't tend to do, things like that. Yeah. The,
0: the one thing that did get me during the actual barrel sequence was when Keeley got shot, I thought, oh, shit, oh, shit, they're actually going to do it. They're, they're going to kill one of these guys. Uh, they, they deliberately sucked all the sound out and had it, uh, it evoke Boromir from um, Amon Hen. And I thought, Christ, no. So there was actual genuine tension there.
2: Well, ultimately, although they haven't um, been explicit about it he's been shot with a Morgul point
0: yeah a Morgul shot
2: that's yeah he's gonna have that for the rest of his life that's never gonna heal no matter what the elves do it lingered for Frodo to the point where he couldn't bear to live anymore
3: might not necessarily be the case because I mean um, Frodo got stabbed very near his heart and yeah yeah he, uh, he Got shown the the knee. He took an arrow to the knee, which was really bad.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I I used to be a dwarven hero, and then I took an arrow to the knee.
3: Yeah. Nice. Um, And it was only a very small bit of Morgul uh, iron, whatever it is. So it it may be, but anyway, yeah, it's it's academic (laughs) (laughs) at this point.
0: Indeed. So yeah, then they meet Bard, and then they go to his barge. Oh we can move to Gandalf and Radagast, and was this the high fells yeah yeah um, they, they didn 't make this abundantly clear to the audience who need to be explained to everything in in one syllable, uh, but that 's where the ring raids were imprisoned that's so all of those busted out cages they appear to have uh, exited and left and gone hunting so i am I'm, uh, I'm giving you a ninety nine percent chance. That by the end of the third film, ring raids, all nine of them.
2: I would think so, yes.
0: Possibly. Almost certainly. Because remember, <laughs> at the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring, they just come riding out of um, uh, Minas Morgul, and it's ju- there's no explanation as to where they came from, who gave them their orders, they're, just, they're, they're going out, so they've, they've been established for yep. a
3: while. But I don't know if there's any need because I mean they've already shown one in.
0: Oh, the, if you're talking the... about need, there's no need. For a <laughs> bunch of things to happen in the whole. Oh. A lot of it is fan service
3: and understand They've that already stuff. shown. They've already shown one. Yeah. Uh, in unexpected journey, so and you know the link between that and uh, the necromancer who is Sauron. So well,
0: from a start, they're going to have to get that blade back to him, aren't
3: they? Yeah, he, yeah. I, I really can't wait to see what. Cause they they have to, attack. Sauron in such a way that they think he's destroyed, or well, enough assurance that he's destroyed, just to carry on, carry on as they were. Yeah. But make it look, but not, you know, not actually kill him. An so it's,
0: uneasy finale. Yeah. Jackson and company mentioned in the uh, uh, commentary for unexpected the Battle of Dol Guldur. So, gonna go ahead and assume there'll be a battle.
3: Yeah, it's not. Yeah, I don't know what that. Because I mean, in the in the appendices, it's just. Uh, the White Council oust uh, the Necromancer from Dol Guldur. So it's not really explained very much.
0: Sharon, are you interested yeah. in seeing Galadriel in full battle dress?
3: I think that will happen, yeah. i just want to know if they could have Haldirin.
0: Uh, hang on, I'm interested in seeing what Sharon's reaction is on this one. Sharon, Galadriel, full battle dress, Inf- uh, infiltrating uh gold goldir and laying waste to orcs as she goes along with saruman and probably radagast as well
2: yes sorry and i El- was just rolling up my, i was just rolling up my tongue and lifting my jaw off the floor um, <laughs> yes <laughs> yes that that would that would be nice
0: <laughs> okay then well i shall i shall make it so so yeah, yeah this is the the high Fels will you be thing. in your bunk I will be in my bunk. The, the Heifels thing is is just to establish that Gandalf is looking deeper into this. It's a little bit um, Attack of the clones in the way that Obi-Wan's doing his detective work in that. That's a terrible comparison to make between yeah. the films, but ultimately Gandalf <laughs> is playing detective.
3: Yeah, it's done a lot better. than. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, I really like that. Cause, yeah, I did like the fact that they don't actually explain where that is. Or that, you know, it just says the nine, it doesn't say, cause I mean, I, I, I do like that, obviously Peter Jackson does think that his, his audience have intelligence and can piece that together themselves yeah. and does, um, she's actually, I was surprised in the Mirkwood bit, um, that, uh, Fandreau mentions that she, uh, the Tarrel S- uh, Sylvan, which I've not meant, cause...
0: They oh, haven't even said Sylvan at any point in any of the... No, no yeah, A, A, they haven't Sylvan. done
3: that, and B, because Frandreau isn't Sylvan, he's, uh, Something else. <laughs> Quenya? Yeah, I think it's Quenya, because I think he, um, and I think I assume, uh, Legolas must be as well, because I think that that's the thing that's sort of like a bit of a, a major class divide in Mirkwood, um, uh, which isn't, it doesn't exist in any any of the other elven, uh, for, uh places.
0: Sylvan elves are mainly Nandor, so. I can't make jokes about Peri-Peri in <laughs> Descent, but also mixed with Avari, Dark Elves. Uh, many of them were later ruled by a small population of social elites who were Sindar, Grey Elves, oh, yeah. or yeah. even Noldor, High Elves. For example, Thranduil, King of Northern Mirkwood, as well as his son Legolas, were Sindarin Elves. There we go, not Quenya. That Quenya is their dialect.
3: Yeah. Um, so that that was I like the fact they did through that, that was very small line in which if you know what He's alluding to explains quite a lot, and the fact that mm.
0: even if you <laughs> yeah. don't know anything about what Sindar means, there is a certain there are class implications there just in in the yeah. context of what yeah, he's saying.
3: Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, um, and yeah, there's the High Fell saying, i oh, are going to the High Fells." Not explain where that is. i um, yeah. not explain who we're looking for, but they find it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Although did, uh, like... when uh, Radagast does turn up, he's like, "Right, I'm going to stand behind Gandalf in the dark, and then go." <sighs> So the Gandalf turns around and goes, "Ah!" (laughs) Why would you do that? Mind you, he is mad. So probably his idea of a wizard's joke. He might have been knocked backwards down a shaft to a (laughs) a pit so deep, light cannot touch its surface.
3: I don't think he interacts with people, so he doesn't know how people would react.
0: He's just sneaking up on hedgehogs.
3: Well, obviously, (laughs) an an animal (laughs) animal would know he was there because of his of his scent he's so. very
0: strong yeah actually for that matter Gandalf should have known he was there I well, smelled the bird droppings
3: <laughs> entered the he's room he's probably more worried about the ring race busting out of their tomb yeah, yeah. it's probably fairly rank in there now that you talk about yeah.
0: it so speaking of 3D wouldn't it just be so much better to be able to watch these films and smell what these places smell like how much more transportive would that be
3: Don't give them ideas.
0: Smell-O-Vision's going to happen when people get sick of 3D.
3: It is already there. You can buy boxes of Smell-O-Vision for your computers. Brilliant. Scratch and sniff.
0: (laughs) So, yeah, we can talk about the Legolas and Toriel scene. Legolas is saying, why are you doing this? Toriel says, I kind of like him and I feel responsible for him.
3: I I am very glad they didn't make it their their romance, because that's what was being hinted at in the trailer. Yeah. Um, so, and that would have been very obvious and not good. So I, I'm glad that it wasn't.
0: We've seen uh, Orlando Bloom conduct a relationship on uh, over several films before. Evangeline Lilly is a fine addition to the series. She's uh, Her accent, uh, in, it, in that sort of clipped manner of speaking, uh, is really refreshing to, to hear. And she's got this very expressive face and eyes. Uh, I, I love the character and the, the, the strength that she's already exhibiting. And... Um, as we said when we were saying how could we, po- how could they possibly deal with a book with no females? You know, considering Fran and Pippa's adherence to interesting, strong female characters, make one up and they've done a good job so far. Confident, capable, knows what she wants, virtuous, unable to stand by while terrible things happen, which interestingly enough makes her very un like because that seems to be one of their defining characteristics. Hi
2: kind of makes sense if she's one of the lower caste of elves yeah. because ch- chances are that she and her kind inverted commas um, have if not actively suffered then at least are aware of the fact that higher elves can be somewhat dismissive and yeah. um, ignorant of what's actually going on in other people's experiences
3: I was just thinking she's acting a bit like um, Arwen in Fellowship yeah she's not supposed to not supposed to really leave there except with permission she goes out and faces ring race yeah um just because that you know she knows that there's if she doesn't then it's all gonna go bad
0: I did mention to Sharon this is the closest that uh, we got to seeing Arwen um at Helm's Deep when she was like Arwen Warrior Princess so you know all of that ass kicking that Toriel does here is roughly what we might have seen if, if she'd been actually if we'd seen those scenes that they shot
2: one thing that um, there has certainly been a tendency to do with the, uh, the the emphasized and or created female characters I think in the um, the whole of the Lord of the Rings uh, movie universe is that they they do this thing where oh god i can 't even think of how Dan phrased it. female characters are interesting in the extent to which they do or do not accept the limitations that their society places upon them. Mm -hmm. And if you look at most of the characters that uh, Peter, Fran and Pippa have created, they basically look at the restrictions that their society has placed on them and then say something very sweary and go off and do what they want to do anyway.
0: Interestingly, elves operate in a very non-gender-specific system. The, the the females seem to have a, a, as much, um, not just right to uh, fight, but right to rule as the males.
2: I don't think there's enough of them to be able to say that categorically. Because although, yes, you have Galadriel, you've also got Arwen, who is... And it's a different, it's a different situation because he's her father, but she is still very much under Elrond's sway. Mm-hmm. Um, and Toriel is obviously, uh, under Thranduil's control.
0: Although the thing that makes it different, um, from the, the scenarios that men face is that the, uh, extremely long life or in, indeed ever, uh, almost infinite life means that they don't have that idea of, well, you should be bloody own-minded in the other seven.
2: Mm. Yes, uh, we must protect the wombs. Must protect the
0: women from <laughs> the wombs because they should be at home looking after the kids, cleaning up the house and uh, making sure that there is something for the soldier men to come home to because ultimately if the women aren't going to fight, then there's nothing to come home to. And since elves don't tend to have children all that often, there's no one to mind.
2: Yeah, frankly, if if Elven women were held to the same kind of restrictive um, lifestyle that uh, human women seem to be in this world, they'd get very bored because there'd be very little to do.
0: Yeah, just read poetry and play the lute and the. Mm. Although, interestingly, in uh, the Unexpected Journey extended edition, you get to see uh, Keeley's predilections towards Elfkind in when they're in uh, Rivendell, and he's like, "Oh, she's a bit of alright." That's a chap.
2: Didn't they suggest that Keeley might actually have a little bit of elven blood in him?
0: Did they? He I, looks in a bit the,
2: elf-y. Not, not in the film, but I'm sure somebody said something in the, in the appendices that they thought, if you looked way back in their genealogy, one of their great-great-great-great-great-grandmothers might have been a little bit friendly with an elven envoy or something like that.
0: Interesting, which would account for their tallness. Mm.
2: Hmm. And Thorin is quite sort of, you know tall and rather attractive as well.
0: You don't say. Mm. <laughs> Did you, I, I, I didn't, you a bit more You've really, really like Richard Armitage over, over time now. I mean, yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I he's, he's this young speaker. He's a speak bit more
2: sudden than that. He's very, very good looking and he can sing
0: he has the shoulder well. and the presence though so yeah like i said yes. it's 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 him over um luke evans who's the the v in the, this time round. he route. does very much yeah. so
2: and uh aiden turner is it
0: that's keely yeah
2: yeah aiden turner does kind of remind me of killian murphy as well so there's mm. that too
0: he's also got a bit of um dominic monaghan in there as well that same sort of slightly uh uh hooded eyes mm. yeah mm. and that twinkle
2: you
1: cannot hunt 30 orcs on your own.
2: But I'm not on my own.
1: You knew I would come. The king is angry, Talia. For 600 years my father has protected you, favored you. You defied his orders. You betrayed his trust. Langolonani, <laughs> Legohenathan. Uohenathan.
2: Kidad wenithan uohenathanim king has never let Orkfield from our lands yet he would let this orc pack cross our borders and kill our prisoners
1: it is not our fight
2: it is our fight it will not end here with every victory this evil will grow if your father has his way we will do nothing we will hide within our walls live our lives
1: away from the light and let darkness descend are we not part of this world Tell me, Mellon, when
2: did we let evil become stronger than us?
0: Yeah, ladies once again spoiled for choice. <laughs> not but just they ladies. Get, they also get... Uh, oh, indeed, yep, sorry. Plenty of people are indeed spoiled for choice. Straight men, not so much. We've got Turiel and Galadriel, and that's pretty much it.
2: For Bard's very screamy oldest daughter.
0: <laughs> if you want to be locked up, yes. I suppose if you're a kid... Oh,
2: sure, she looked about 17.
0: Your Honor <laughs> <laughs> a bit of weird area here let's go to Lake- <laughs> oh. everyone's got a moustache and smells of fish <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah this is this is the first time that um the music was <clears throat> I said last year that uh, that this was, he was finally going to be free of the uh, original trilogy and having to re- hark back to that and that uh, Howard Shaw will be able to break free and give us some brilliant tunes. A lot less hummable than I thought they would be. There's Lake Town, there's A Feast of Starlight, which is uh, that piece of music where uh, Turiel and Keely are talking, which is reprise near the end. much it I mean he reprises the um, the Smaug theme which it sounds it's a variation on sour and that The Tetra of Mankind theme, which is the uh, um, Barb the Bowman and also Lake Town, that's the Rohan theme for this film.
3: Yeah, yeah, I really like that. Also, there was the Mirkwood Elves theme, which they had a bit of in the the prologue of uh, the first film, which I really like, especially the um, the sort of action version, which is a plane during the the, the, uh, Barrels Out of Bond bit
0: well maybe if I listen to it some more I might sort of really start to it'll grow on me that definitely with unexpected it's um there's more difference than than I thought there was with the uh
3: yeah 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 definitely I think the problem I think the problem obviously with the Lord of the Rings is they're more we're going off to save the world so there's all big yeah powerful music and oh this is a big battle that actually has importance uh or that or we've got a a very distinct people in Rohan. um but this is more of a it's it's for the problem I think the problem is that he's focusing always focusing on the same fourteen people. Yeah. Um which so they've got to have variations of uh the dwarf films. which I really like the dwarf you know, I like the two dwarf films, as the, the the sort of mischief one and then the adventuring one. Mm. Um the, like the, there's
0: an aerobore theme as well, which played repeatedly in this, uh which is the, how does that one go? It's derived from the more uh, Delph theme in uh, Fellowship. Yeah. That played repeatedly. They didn't reprise the Song of the Lonely Mountain, and I expected that they would almost be leaning on it. But no, it was it was drawn back a lot more.
3: And uh, yeah, I, I think the thing is that the other one, it's because it's introducing everyone, it was like the, the sort of bit more powerful. And if you go to Rivendell again, it's a Rivendell theme, but hmm. this one, it's it's more sort of running... Fighting and and then when you're a bit of a bit of in the places.
0: It's it's mood music. There's a lot of. No, yeah. no, no. <laughs> um. One thing that slightly worries me, they, it's very much in one place for this um, final film. We've already had the uh, the Lake Town music, and I'd imagine when Smaug's attacking it, there'll be a, a combination of uh, of the Smaug music and the, the the Lake Town music. But it's then they're in Erebor, and then there's the mm-hmm. Five Armies. But we're not going anywhere new. In the same in, in Return of the King, you went to Gondor, you got the Gondor theme, and there was that sense of covering new ground. But if you're, you know, in, in the original film too, you know, you, you'd get to uh, Lake Town in the same film that it would be concluded. Yeah. So I think that, that I'm not going to hold out huge amounts of hope that there'll be massive new themes introduced in this third one. Maybe just sort of resolution.
3: Yeah. Well, that's, well, they could do stuff, Um, I mean, I, I could definitely, well, I mean, a reprise, I could see the Misty Mountain song coming back. Yeah. Uh, as a sort of pre-battle hymn. Yes. Uh, or as a, as a post-battle hymn. I'm, I, I'm, I don't, I, I don't know if it's in the book. I'm sure I, uh, there is a version which is a sort of post, post-action uh, version, which is sort of like we've, you know, we've, we've, we've reclaimed our, our forgotten gold, which I don't think is the, I don't think is the, the song at the end of the first film. yeah I think Um, so yeah, I, yeah, I, I, there could be new stuff just, um, yeah, it depends what like, if they do any flashbacks or or the the linking between the films if they do anything anything new. Yeah, I, I don't think there'll be much new stuff. But
0: I will say, looking at the amount, the sheer deluge of treasure in the halls, that the idea of Thorin saying, "No, this is all ours," is mental. It's <laughs> round the twist, and, not, and that's going to be impossible to relate to for anyone and be like, "Oh yeah, yeah, now that's reasonable." Or I can sort of see where he's coming from. The dwarves did mine this themselves. It's like, no, just share it out. You literally... What, what are you going to buy with it? It's just gold. Uh, it, um, Benedict Cumberbatch even sort of related the, uh, the, the hunger for gold and um, smug himself with the financial crisis. There is a smart man. Yeah, anyway, so Lake that? Town... <laughs>
3: basically completely rewritten to take into account what's happened in the world because uh the lord of lake uh the, the master of lake town keeps going on about basically terrorists yeah, um, you know like enemies of the state uh which is not in the book at all but really? the, well the whole bard being a uh subversive is not in the book at all either he's just a character um yeah that's Captain of the Guard I think I was going
0: to say yeah in the animated version he you proclaims himself as Captain of the Guard and it's quite well to do in the town
3: yeah I don't, but, um, but I think you know just because Peter Jackson has sort of woven in some you know enemy of the state uh, subversive stuff just to make it a bit more of a, a, a storyline otherwise it's just a staging post for the dwarves to yeah. go to yeah. to go to Erebor but now it's a it's a proper city that, that you know his, his rule is hanging on by a thread really and a, which is useful for Bard because that yeah you know, once once the dragon uh, destroys a thing and Bard kills him he can like in the book he just basically takes over which he can do if it's that sort of political climate uh, especially if he is put off as, as the hero of the common man. Mm. Um, so I did quite like I it was it was I don't know if it, I found it very obvious though when I kept saying it so if it's the way the way Stephen Fry was. was acting, but it's just every time he said, it's a, you know, enemy of the state, it was like, yep, okay, that's what they're doing. <laughs> it is a
2: bit worrying if it is allegorical, though, because given that we know what happens after this, that rather suggests that Peter Jackson thinks that the solution to the financial crisis and everything that's going wrong in the world at the moment is that a big guy with a very large eye is going to take over the entire <laughs> world and kill everyone, <laughs> which is one way of dealing with it, I suppose, but... One thing I really liked about Lake Town, actually, is that the... Uh, obviously, in the, the original trilogy, I shouldn't call it the original trilogy, should I really? No. Um, one thing about the Lord of the Rings trilogy um, is that the, uh, the towns and the states that they visit um, all have this very rural medieval feel about them. Um, You've got Rohan is out on the plains. Uh, They're obviously, you know, they have to be very self-reliant because they have no other choice. Uh, Gondor is um, obviously quite a well-to-do city, but it is very isolated it's a long way from anywhere else and osgiliath is in ruins so you can't really see how how that would have interacted with people but lake town is this living breathing collection of actual people Mm -hmm. that that have jobs and livelihoods and uh, you know go about doing their thing and it's not this uh sort of typical fantasy idyll um which i thought was really nifty actually in fact I will put my hand up and confess that I have not read any actual blogs or or articles or anything in which people say this. I have only heard people talking about people who say this. But apparently there has been some criticism about the ethnic mix in Lake Town that basically, um, oh, they've they've done it deliberately to seem PC. They've put black people in there and Asian people in there and, and tried to make it look like middle earth isn't you know whiter than bleach um but think about it lake town's a trade city it makes perfect sense that there would be an ethnic mix of people there
0: easterlings and Southrons.
2: yeah exactly you know people would have come from all over to to make money i mean if if it was once upon a time it was a a town that made its living by trading with these incredibly wealthy Mm. dwarves that would have been a massively sought after place to live and and work and do business and those people if they have their uh, livelihoods pulled out from underneath them because the dwarven city gets destroyed they can't exactly leave
0: yeah where else are you going to get your sausages tomatoes and nice crispy bacon <laughs> <laughs> mm. but yeah,
2: yeah is, so anyway
3: it's definitely yeah it's the most um i mean sort of the the, the sort of east of the Anduin is not very well documented by tolkien but yeah. it's a uh, uh, it's the, 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 that's the map. It's the most, basically the most easterly point they've been to apart from Gondor, but as that's a very, uh, closed state, basically it's Gondor for Gondorians. Um, it seems that way, even though they're supposed to be a lot more Mediterranean than they are in the film, but, um, uh, but yeah, I, I, it didn't seem out of place at all. It just felt like a, uh, yeah, as you said, a trading place that, That was destroyed, so people just have to stay there because they can't can't afford to leave. Mm. So you just get a a, you know bigger mix of people than you would normally. Yeah.
1: If you awaken that beast, it will destroy us all. You can listen to this naysayer, but I promise you this: if we succeed, all will share in the wealth of the mountain. You will have enough gold to rebuild Eskaroth ten times over! All of you, listen to me! You must listen! Have you forgotten what happened to Dale? Have you forgotten those who died in the firestorm? And for what purpose? The blind ambition of a mountain king, so riven by greed he could not see beyond his own desire! no right right to enter that mountain I have
0: the only right but really it's entirely within Thorin's interest to uh, make sure that the uh, nearby uh, trading town absolutely flourishes it is absolutely within his interest to turn this gold into sustainable trade routes
3: yeah and I think he sees it the way the easy way of making that happen is for the masters to be in power and just Mm. you know just give him money and then then so he can rebuild and, and set up trading routes again yeah. uh, rather than bard who got them in and shows you know shows he can you know he had has he has cunning and and he can could set up stuff like that it's just he, he isn't in the position to do it it's the easier easier path is to mm-hmm. just get the get the stuff off of uh the the government basically quicker
0: easier more seductive
3: <laughs> yes
0: I wonder if Tolkien would like the idea of it being directly allegorical rather than
3: applicable. Uh, no, he
0: wouldn't. He hates that sort of thing.
3: Yeah, some of, of his stuff is very... <laughs> yeah. The whole of Dwarf Hank is very allegorical. So. Yeah, for the uh, Industrial Revolution.
0: Okay, yeah. so um, they then move off to the doorstep and uh, climb up the um, uh, dwarf statue uh, but this, the scene where the, the dwarves just gave up and went, right, well we did, it didn't work then we'll bugger off then was astonishing for me. I was like, you're not gonna just wait for like ten more minutes? Consider it? To, again, this, this compounded the whole idea of that it's not man that's too hot-headed and prone to uh, sudden snap reactions, it's friggin' dwarves. Sharon, you noticed there was a really great shot lined up where Thorin uh, said, Thorin, you're not like your grandfather. And someone was saying, "Yeah, my grandfather was going mad." And then he turns his face, and he is silhouetted against a uh, giant dwarven statue.
2: God, yeah, that was that was amazing.
3: Yeah, um, I also think the, the the thing about the, I mean, the thrush knocks, you know, thrice is such a you know a, a, a riddle. Like, oh, you need to know thrush uh, migratory patterns. And, Are you
0: suggesting uh, thrushes migrate?
3: <laughs> <laughs> She does. It's slightly different in the book because there's ravens there that the dwarves can speak to, and
0: in the the, this is one of the worst bits of the book because they just they just sit there. It's the opposite in the film. They go, out, sod this," and we're off. Uh, In the in the book, all of them get up there and then just sit there and wait.
3: And they they do arrive a lot sooner than one day or the the evening of June's day. But yeah, I I think it is just that
0: all those action sequences took their time.
3: Yeah, I think it's just last light implies. Yeah, the, the last sunlight doesn't take into account the moon, so I think, oh, that's it, we'll go home to our lives that we've just left. Yeah. Really.
0: Uh, the one thing that I hadn't noticed before, until uh, seeing, um, again, uh, unexpected, Balin says, you've built us a home in the Blue Mountains, we have a good home. So they yeah. may be nomadic, but they have set up shop that they, they don't need well, Erebor.
3: No, there's there's the Iron Heels as well, which is very close to Erebor, mm. but which... um. I think they they have relations to are like the definitely same lineage. Yeah,
0: so it's a and, much, much shades of grey scenario with uh, with uh, yeah. Thorin trying to take this back. It's a lot of it just comes down to the fact that it's his family home.
3: Well, that that also uh, that's why like they they included the the Gandalf bits because Gandalf is basically pushing him to do it. So it's it's all on Gandalf really. He's, he wants uh, Smaug out of the way just in case just for when Sauron. Flames yeah. power, he can't basically own that part part of Middle Earth, and if he if he, if Smaug is still there when Sauron comes back, the Wood El- uh Mirkford Wood Elves have no chance whatsoever. Yeah. It's an
0: airborne flamethrower,
3: utterly yeah. unkillable, and just that that whole and obviously all the the you just got the, that defence I mean there's you got you could also you also link the Iron Hills, which is to the east of Erebor, with the rest of Middle Earth, so you've got a bit more protection from them as well. Yeah. Um, so that's why I that's why I like the, the, the day to the be because otherwise you just feel like yeah you've got a good home you've got gold you've got uh you just you you just want to reclaim your gold and your you know your right as, as a king which is and your pride expensive. yeah basically yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, Sharon, you you were gasping at the point where Bilbo nearly kicked the key off the side of the uh, mountain I was like, they, they get in. It's not... But that just shows how extremely well uh, put was very, together that scene I got scene very was.
2: caught up in it, yeah. The, the second half of the film as a whole, to be honest with you, really grabbed me. And it was, it was a bit weird, actually, because on some level, part of my brain was going, you know what happens.
3: <laughs> yeah. Why
2: are you getting all freaked out by this, that and the other? But it, it was. I was, it, I think it really started when, um, no, I was going to say when um, Bilbo saw the steps leading up the mountain, but I think it was even before that. But yeah, I just, I felt totally emotionally invested in it, even though I knew what was going to happen, which is good. If, if a film can do that with my cynical brain. Mm um as you know ted i'm very cynical um <laughs> then um it's doing pretty well i think
3: yeah. yeah i i felt the same sort of from beginning of murkwood onwards um until, until one moment in the end of the film but that took me out a bit of it but after Just that it's like to that, yeah even yeah, with the key it i was thinking oh what? <laughs> i'll kick that if you need that <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I, and it, it, it's a you know, it's a good scene when foreign just comes back into view. Um, yeah. So I, I know why they did it. So
0: <laughs> and the scene when they actually get to venture inside had you in tears, didn't it? Sharon? the um the idea of them yeah, finally be able to take that them back. Just that feeling
2: of them being home, even if you know even if there's still so much more work to do to reclaim it, and um you know smog to overcome, and and everything else that's between them and what they perceive as being the end of their quest. Just that feeling of. I think it sort of summed up something for me that worked on a very, very personal level. Um, The sense of thinking that one thing is home and, you know, really wanting that and pining for it and feeling like you can never truly have it back or, or have it if it's something that you've never really had before. But sort of this this idealised image of what home is going to be to you and, and that you'll know what it feels like when you get there. But for now, it seems very, very far away. And then having a moment where you walk in through a door and suddenly realise, oh, shit, actually, this was home. And I didn't realise... There was a sort of very um, heavy but comfortable feeling of things slotting into place at that point, and obviously because they they were very overcome with emotion as well. And and um, Barlin's performance throughout the whole thing has impressed me greatly. But just that there was a moment where he just he went to say something and couldn't, and that was all you needed to know how overwhelmed he was.
1: Yeah.
0: We cut back to Bard's house, and he talks about black arrows. And in the original book, we're, we're talking literally just arrows and bows here, but they, because they uh, made Smaug quite as huge as he actually was, it had to be on a, a, a sort of a giant, like siege arrow launching, like harpoon launcher. Windlass. Yeah.
2: Wind isn't
3: it? No, windlass. Uh, oh,
0: sorry. Don't be, don't be challenging, Chris, or <laughs> any matters to do with pointy things being fired.
2: <laughs> points, By yes. way of
0: cable, I bow
2: down to the master I,
0: or the Rohan pube bow. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I do quite a bit about medieval siege engines say. as well. So.
0: Um, didn't notice it in the original Unexpected Journey. It's totally there if you uh, look okay, back at the I... scene when uh, Smaug trashes um, Dale. There, there's a guy firing from that roof, and that would be Bard's ancestor.
3: Yeah, I did like the the sort of flashback as yeah. well. Yeah, had... it's a nice
0: uh, way of giving it significance. Uh, ultimately, it does kind of reduce the amount of what could possibly happen with Smaug attacking Lake Town to just him getting to the right place where Bard can fire that one black arrow into his chest. Wow. I do think, but that was always really going to be the case.
2: Tolkien does hinge rather a lot of his um, ongoing multi-generational plots on which sperm was in the right place at the right time. D- d- there doesn't have to be the ancestry line between Bard and this thing having happened in yeah,
0: the past. That's right. Heaped responsibility is a huge recurring theme throughout the uh, the movie series people just doing things because they're just the right thing to do is also there and very prevalent. But some characters have to have the responsibility and some characters have to just do it because it's the right thing. Otherwise, if everyone's doing it because it's just the right thing, there, there seems to be less of a sense of uh, weight to it.
2: Well, I have, a, I have very strong <laughs> feelings about um, uh, ancestor responsibility anyway, but...
0: Well, no, carry on then.
2: Well, no, I just, I mean... From my own personal perspective, I would rather have a scenario where people are doing things just because it's the right thing to do rather than because my great-great-grandfather failed at this thing and therefore I have to do it properly in order to, you know, reclaim the honour of my lineage and blah
0: blah so would you rather everyone in the story just felt like that because yeah. it would require unpicking and reworking the entire social system of middle earth
2: no not at all and i'm not i'm not criticizing it from that perspective obviously there is also the the fact that it's harkening back to the weight of responsibility that aragorn felt because he was isilda's heir um i don't know I don't i don't I don't think it's really that important that I didn't think it was that important.
0: Because taking it away from Aragorn and Faramir would take, and Boromir and Denethor, and that. Yeah,
2: but at least, a- at least in their case, it makes sense because they are aristocracy, and the the obsession with lineage in the aristocracy is very well documented.
0: And Frodo because of what Bilbo did, and uh, <laughs> it just goes on and on. One does not simply do it because it's the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well Mary maybe and Pippin do it because it's the right thing.
2: Maybe it's because on some level And they I have
0: no like responsibility. I
2: know. well that I like that. Maybe well, it's yeah, because Well yeah, Well yeah, that's
0: the thing level. that that makes that more of a significant gesture. if well,
2: it shouldn't be. as Everybody should do things just because they're the right thing to do, goddammit. The whole
0: point of Lord of the Rings is aren't hobbits incredible. They do this shit because they have a sense of right and wrong. Uh... <laughs> That's the point. That's why Gandalf loves them. They aren't ruled by their I've got to do this because my dad did this. Their dad sat on his fat ass. <laughs> And ate pies. That's literally what the Hobbit's fathers and fathers' fathers did for generations back. All that stuff about Bull Rora took probably didn't even happen.
2: I'm not saying well, that I think everybody... Although
0: Gandalf did try to, to press Bilbo on that particular one. He was like, look, you've got to do some shit. No other hobbit has done anything <laughs> apart well, from your great-uncle or Bul- Bul- Bul-
3: <laughs> And the battalion of dwarf, dwar- uh, uh, hobbit archers that were sent to Fornost at the Fall of the Witch King.
0: Lest uh, we forget.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the only invention <laughs> of combat hobbits. Clearly some of hobbits. us had. <laughs>
0: <laughs> of course. But no, it's a really good point that you raise there, Sharon, and the only reason that I'm uh, arguing against it is because there are very strong reasons on either side. I, 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 I agree with it. you that people should be compelled to do things because they're the right thing, and that it makes it much more of a, a prominent uh, narrative factor if it is outlined as the work of somebody who has no responsibility. Yes. I feel like I'm stamping down on you here. Am I? No, no, not at all.
2: No, I, I, I think we're both. We are actually both trying to say the same thing, um, sort of. Um, I'm not saying that it shouldn't be the case in works of fiction that this happens. It's frustrating that this is not something that happens in the real world more
0: often. Yeah, isn't but the it? The
2: point of the work of fiction is to demonstrate to the real world that,
0: uh, you know... But that's why it's called strength of character. If everybody was selfless and gave a shit, then people who were selfless and gave a shit wouldn't be special.
2: And wouldn't the world be a more <laughs> awesome place? Yes, it
0: would. But you're <laughs> idealising the entire world here.
3: Yes, also, I am.
2: Somebody book- has to.
3: Also, books don't have to have an impact in- the books that like have an impact in sort of everyday life because then they would all turn into no one which is awful. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I I can't <laughs> drifting of allegory too much. Anyway we'll talk about that <laughs> to
1: Chris. <laughs>
0: So Bilbo sneaks into Erebor and finally confronts Smaug, something that so
3: many people were waiting for. It, they did a talking dragon very well, which can either, can come off very badly. Because mm. mm, you know, things that shouldn't be able to talk start talking, their mouths go weird. So he, he looked like a a rep, a reptilian creature that was talking, but not necessarily, you know, Having the vocal cords to do it, but it's a magical creature that can talk. Um, the problem is, you get things that, you know, oh, a dragon has to talk, it has to have lips and things. It's like, you know, it, it doesn't look like a dragon. So I thought that the animation was very good and the, the character design was very good. Um, I, I, think that, that whole scene was very well done. I, I do I especially like the, because it's Martin Freeman and, and, yeah. uh, Ben, they come back to talking to each other. So it's basically Sherlock. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there's something about that Benedict Cumberbatch is made to sit, to make a cinema sit up and take notice uh, his, his turn in uh, Star Trek Into Darkness well, most people really didn't like uh, Star Trek Into Darkness or were disappointed by it or just considered it a piece of shit um but most people would agree Benedict Cumberbatch was at least very watchable in it and not just watchable listenable you know, I, I adored every second Smug was on screen. Every every moment he was speaking, every single turn of his uh, his brow, every single movement of his body, he was an absolute triumph. Uh, as in terms of on screen presence, he filled up a building worth of presence. He stole the show. So yeah, there you go. If it's a film for anyone, it's friggin' Smug. Smile.
2: Smug. Yeah. He, he did. <laughs> Um, they they reinforced the links I I felt between um, him and Sauron, yeah. um, it, to the extent that it, it did occur to me at one point that you could read Smaug as another avatar of Sauron and it would yeah. work.
0: Or Horcrux, as we said last year. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, but I I mean the scene with Gandalf where the the uh, where Sauron basically emerges blew me away. Yeah really mm. really did i mean i actually saw the the emergence of the silhouette as Anatar. um although it, it as he moved forward it became apparent like that he was wearing a big spiky yeah. helmet yeah, yeah so he's he, obviously not anymore but um just the idea of this figure composed primarily of light but the closer he gets you realize that he's actually the darkness
3: yeah that whole uh dogwood all uh scene with gandalf going around it i really like just the the just the, the way the, the my sister called it Patronus, but uh, the wave of light coming off. Yeah. And, and, um,
2: it did look like a Patronus, yeah. actually. In especially,
3: especially
0: he's even done that once before when the Balrog attacked him with his um,
3: cleaver. Yeah. Um, especially at the, the sort of the middle bit where where he's fighting uh, yeah. uh, spectral Sauron with yeah. the, just the the play of sort of like the black black ink tendrils on the on the. the Bubble, I thought it was really well done,
1: yeah.
3: and just that was that's very well that's very uh, very well shot and sort of artistic. Uh, scene.
0: It was very measured as well because it was for yeah. for a while you're like could could he actually beat back Sauron is is he powerful enough and is Sauron weakened enough? Did it, no, no, Sauron That's is he's just playing with him at this point. He oh, is about of, to batter him.
3: Sort of like the parallels with the uh, his fight with the Witch King in which the King, instead yeah. so instead of staff breaking, it just it disintegrates, which is obviously a, a much more powerful uh, effect uh, yeah. for the match on the staff.
2: Actually, the light barrier cut was kind of um, a reflection of the, the one that he uses to drive back the—is it the Fell Beast? When they're riding across the plains towards Gondor.
0: Yeah, it is. A, yeah. It's a, it's a ring width on a Fell Beast.
2: Yeah, it's it's more directed. It's more of a beam than a bubble. Yeah. But it, I think it was a similar sort of thing.
0: Yeah. Lyra commented when we were watching Unexpected earlier today. There are four wizards: grey, white, brown, and black. And she meant the Necromancer Sauron. She believes he's a wizard. He's not, but uh, the idea, the the symbolism of he, him being the black wizard is brilliant.
3: Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, he's effectively <laughs> yeah, called I the mean, Witch King. So
0: yeah, I mean, there, there's the there two blue wizards who may as well not exist because they uh, they are a part <laughs> of the unfinished tales, and we are not <laughs> to speak of them. Hence the mention of uh, you know, I've quite forgotten their names in uh, Unexpected
2: comedy turned to camera wah, wah,
0: we'd say yeah. but we're not allowed <laughs> <laughs> it was also fantastic to see uh Azog uh, here in the uh, sort of the, the beginnings of what looked like what would then be moved to Barad-Dur do I mean Barad-Dur yeah. yeah I do mean Barad-Dur
3: um also like yeah the, the the sort of legions of orcs coming out looked look like um uh, Morgul as well when that the, yeah. but off they're going I assume they're going to uh Lonely Mountain for the Battle of the Five Armies.
0: I, I felt suitably afraid for Gandalf, even though I was like, we know he survives <laughs> this. But just he, he was in very real and palpable danger at that point. They had a certain mockingness about it, and almost an easiness about it. If they'd been like, get him, get the wizard, it would have been like, yeah, you run, Gandalf, you're going to kick their asses. But they were almost sort of, you know, we are Legion at this stage. You cannot get away.
3: Yeah. I like they didn't also overdo the the sort of the false push, which is like a, a little yeah. stay away rather than I'm going to go right across this, the this, the uh, the castle, which would have been a bit you know just overdone. It's like you, just don't, you don't you don't you don't need a little just to just uh, to emphasise the fact that he is not in a good position. <laughs> yeah. Probably should not have gone in on his own.
0: This uh, has odd parallels with the end of Goblet of Fire as well. Just Gandalf's gonna come away from this and say, It was him, it was the, it was the, it was Saruman. We were like, We can't believe that he's back. Which it was is, the
2: Lord of Darkness with the shifty eyes.
0: With the shifty eye. <laughs> None shiftier. Yeah,
3: um, yeah that's why, I, again, I can't want to see what they're gonna do next film to see how that. So I, I assume Saruman is involved as well, and he's like the, the main one that'll say, No, he's not, he's not back. When. From the from the first film, Guy I was a bit like, yeah, he probably is. Yeah,
0: but and like sixty any, years have to go by after like, that.
3: Yeah, yes, yeah, so that's why I think I. That's why I want to see what they do. Yeah. They must dis, must destroy it enough to think that they've killed him, or at least weakened him enough that they can. Yeah, sort of lower their guard because they're they're not preparing in any way.
0: But he ends up at the beginning of the uh, uh, Fellowship, just on top of the tower in Barad Dur, and everyone seems to be aware that he's there yeah okay, so the Orcs attack, and that we haven't really talked about the smile scenario that the shifting Treasure and the 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 intensity of the situation that Bilbo is placed under, and the that the him being hunted around the gold again in, in an almost lazy way by uh, Smaug to begin with, like he's just sort of woken up and he's like, ah, oh, something's here. I'm curious, but I'm just gonna, um, you know, I, I will idly look for you at this stage.
2: Uh, one thing I really loved about that whole setup, and and it, it's an entirely technical point, really, and it's a very small thing, but the way they had um, all the, the gold and the treasure laid out, the scale of it, it looked like sand. Mm. And when Bilbo's running around on it, and particularly when Smaug flies up and you see the gold coins falling off it, it's like little tiny grains of sand. It made the whole thing seem um, very reminiscent of Aladdin's cave to me.
0: I'm so happy they didn't CGI him and have him Scrooge McDuck that thing. Because <laughs> a, a lesser director would have had Bilbo dive into the treasure and then come back out with just like, but that would kill him. He would just <laughs> splinter <into> his face. <laughs> ah, who cares? The treasure's moving. It felt solid and they adhered to its weight. It felt momentous and huge. So even though God knows how much of that stuff was actually real, they really sold the scale of, of the inside of Erebor in that. The fact it's that it was night as well, in, in most of the other t- times I've seen that represented, there was a, a very, in the cartoon, for example, there's a very red glow to it. It's very warm. It's not as oppressive uh, in the book. It's not being described but the fact that it's night. And remember, we, we've seen it before. It was at dusk, so there was still lots of golden light being thrown in through some high windows that for some reason Thorin can't reach. But here at night, it felt so oppressive and so cold and dead. It was like a haunted house.
3: Yeah, especially especially the um where they find the all the deads. Uh, oh, uh, that that have really of more. Right? It's, it's, yeah. it's not mine. It's a tomb. That um, was a dreadful moment, but incredibly well handled. Yeah, yeah I, I'm very glad they kept that in. You know, the the tone completely shifts. Then it's like it's not. Yeah. Oh, you know, we're we going on an adventure to get gold, and then it's like oh yeah, but everyone died when when we were here last, yeah. and,
0: and not just not just killed by the dragon. They hid here and died yeah. in terror.
3: Um, don't necessarily like the result of what happens because of that, but um, somebody I mean, before I of that as an impetus to fight Smaug, which. Uh... <sighs>
0: A lot of ended people are going to not be happy with this, are
3: they? Yeah, I I, I... I don't think it's needed if you... I know why he did it. To, to A, give the draw something to fight, and they, they they feel like they need to have some input, and to nudge the Lake Town destruction to the next film, because I think it probably does need to be on the next film.
0: Do you think that if, this was from, put together after the uh, initial split...
3: I I don't know. There's a lot of CGI, so I don't know how long that took to do. That that is awesome. The the second thing, it just gets a for me, it gets a mess of CGI because the cgi dragon flapping around in the cgi um gold in the cgi uh ropes in the cgi bo- uh baskets
0: it does become a bit goblin towny isn't it, again yeah
3: um
0: but then again it's it's at such a scale it or, will be impossible to actually fabricate
3: all of that stuff yeah, oh, yeah dangerous, i, just, I, needed, if nothing else. I it, oh, yeah i just think it i think it i just think it needs less i think the the i know why the, sort of the trailing lines are across because it's you know place of in industry, but. it' Just getting caught up in that, just it, you just can't they can't CGI ropes when and does that banner falling down look really bad? Hmm.
0: I did yeah. I did like the fact that um, they could easily have just gone for a, very, a fairly short chase with the dragon and the dragon flies off and it would have felt like Shrek, but they went far far beyond that and made it very personal and smell gets yeah. pissed off
3: in this. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah I, I, I I can see why they did it. I just think it yeah, I think it. Maybe it been a bit less, I think it was just a bit full on and yeah. CGI for me, but um I know why they put it in. They they put it into to in the way they did it, which was evil. Yeah.
0: <laughs> there is an they... odd neat symbolism as well in the fact that Bilbo saves all the dwarves by pulling one handle in the uh, with the barrel scenario and then saves the day by pulling the other handle during this. Yeah. Ah,
2: nice. I think did they the only thing really that was possibly missing can you really call it missing if they never intended it to be there in the first place but i think what i felt the loss of was um there's more of a sense of creeping dread at the end of two towers yeah um and i think if they had made the uh, the pursuit by smaug and his uh you know angry departure a little bit more low key then they possibly would have been able to create that same sense of impending threat Uh, rather than having a minor moment of victory before Mm. moving on to the next thing.
0: So had Smaug uh, decided at some point, rather than getting actually angry at them, say, you know what, I'm done with this, and then... Exit and then yeah. oh, and screaming exit. after him,
2: Come back! Yeah, have it more of a, you know, have him refuse to give them the opportunity to challenge him. Have it be more a case of, How dare you even think you can walk in here, let alone take me on for that? I am going to go and destroy Lake Town.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because they just need to, I mean, because obviously the, the reason he goes is because Bilbo says Bower Rider, so he just needs to, I mean, if you're just like either. Like blocked them off somewhere uh, just have a little fight blocked them off somewhere and then saying well I'm going to destroy your friends in Lake Town and then I, I did really like the way they ended it Bilbo uh, sitting on the, the, the spur of the, the the hill and just watching him fly off yeah that um, was very powerful yeah uh, well yeah power, power, powerless for him powerless for power, him powerful for us yeah yeah um, I just say you know what have we done um just to think, you know, I said it was just a bit too much actiony at the end and CGI for me.
0: But. Yeah, they kind of had to justify their climax because there were, there were a yeah. few people going, "Well, they meet the dragon, he flies off, that's the end. That doesn't have an yeah. ending." I'm going to go ahead and guess that a lot of the hijinks there with the furnace were actually, um We need more of an end for film two, yeah. Because otherwise, this would be in the smack bang in the middle of film two version one, and that's ultimately I. This is the film that made me keep thinking that. This is the film that made me keep thinking about the edit, not in a bad way, but just in the way that I'm very curious about that kind of thing. I think and, that and
3: would we're... that would have made that end that end bit far less powerful though, wouldn't it? If if that had been mid film, yeah, it works a lot better being at the end of a film. It's like yeah, it's a very good cliffhanger on. Yeah.
0: Uh, also, I really love that moment where after Bilbo's had the uh, banner fall on him, I I. I didn't mind the banner fall because I just the striking sight of Bilbo running into that hole that was so massive yeah. um, was enough for me just to take my breath away after a series of breathtaking scenarios. And let's not forget Thorin's sudden turn on Bilbo during the uh, scenario where he's you know, asking about the Ark and Stone and it's like, whoa, hang on a second here. He's holding his sword at him and that again, that would probably have worked better in a film where um, Thorin is having an arc. But yeah, that that was a really uncomfortable, uneasy, and suitably so moment. Um, but Bilbo shouts after Smaug, "You can't do that!" And he's totally unprotected. And Smaug could have turned around at that point and just snapped him up, but he didn't. And it's it, it, out of sadism. Um, but Bilbo puts his life on the line there for the, for, for all the people. It, it, he's not even thinking, you know, I can actually prevent this dragon from doing this. But it just you suddenly see what he's made of there again. And he is g- genuinely a good person, despite any weaknesses he may have. And back in Lake Town, you've got the orc attack, and you get to see CGI Legolas again. <laughs> it's, he trades off, and I'm like, "Ah, oh, this is a really good fight, this is really physical. Nope, oh, there's the CGI Legolas fighting some CGI orcs. And, oh, this is real again? I shouldn't be thinking that. Weta Digital works so hard. I don't know why it's so obvious to me. Maybe it's just because I've 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 grown up with this stuff.
3: But um, yeah, yeah, I was thinking about that, that. I don't know if it. Yeah, I I think it's just because it's becoming more prevalent, or it's just it's obvious.
0: Well, it it, it reminded me actually. Do you remember the multiple Smith fight in uh, Matrix Reloaded? Yeah. There's a bit where. The fight changes round, and a regular Neo fighting a bunch of Hugo Weavings turns what well, uh, turns into CGI Neo fighting a bunch of CGI Hugo Weavings. And my brain just checks out and goes, "I don't care at this point. Do yeah. care. Looks like a video game, and not a good video game at that." That's what the sudden switch over to CG Legolas felt like fighting CG orcs, and I don't know don't why, because it's a fight. it's just a fight. You don't need I- to suddenly go to CG.
3: I don't know if it is. Uh, it could be the transition to film. It was um, I take it the Lord of the Rings was still shot on film? Yeah. Uh, so that could be this. This was shot on shot digitally. So it could be a, a weird thing between it. That there is more noticeable between the the live action and the and the CGI.
0: Well, yeah, but I can point out reason. all the other bits of sudden CGI Legolas in the uh, the first three films. There's a the bit when they're running.
3: <sighs> I know, but I think it wasn't the- as obvious at the time. It hey, bloody was.
0: Yeah, it really was. Like, well. when he runs across the bridge of Khazad-dum, I remember going, "Ooh!" The bit when he's of oh, the, the one control, where he control
2: flips onto the horse. Backwards. When they run
0: out into uh, from Mario after bad. Gandalf has fallen, he's the most noticeable when they come to a stop. And then, you yeah, can. the the bit where he CGI jumps onto the horse, and that's because Orlando Bloom has hurt his shoulder. The bit where the the, the oliphant is less noticeable because what the digital were working their bollocks off by the time uh, Return of the King came around but it was just odd seeing him back yeah so I I, I just I don't want to go through this whole thing Go everything's perfect, everything's brilliant there are imperfections they don't harm the film enough for me but they're imperfections that I'm a little bit baffled by because obviously with the jumping onto the horse thing that was because of an actual injury unless Orlando Bloom became injured and couldn't finish that fight there is no reason why he couldn't just have actually fought two other orcs he's very good at that he, he sells those bust ups. That's what he's good at. Anyway, so there's that. Uh, and then there's the, uh, scene with Keely and Turiel. Um, now, yeah, Chris, you're sighing. Sharon, yeah. you liked the bit when he saw her, but then when she started glowing, you didn't like it. Am I the only person in the world who loved every second of this scenario? Yes. And why did <laughs> why didn't you like it then?
3: Because it was Fellowship of the Ring again why is like that Sharon bad was saying, because was like Sharon was saying earlier when it's they even uh, play a
0: bit of the Arwen theme
3: yeah it's when uh, directors put exactly the same bit from the original film into the sequel but just change it slightly it's just it's
0: yeah,
3: I, I can't understand it if it's not
0: I said this to Sharon basically the physics of the fact that he's been stabbed by a Morgul blade at this point yeah, is being given Kingsport and surely when you're that close to the shadow elves will glow like, so that's literally the same
3: physical reaction Okay. That it te- actually
2: makes sense I
0: can't if really argue with that
3: one <laughs> I'm can because not sure about the music not- <laughs> I can because that's not how it works
0: Oh for goodness sake
3: um, The elves only glow when they've been to the Undying Lands and come back again Really? Yes So, so should oh, will not- bit
0: in Fellowship of the Ring as well? <laughs> She's wearing a different dress during that
3: moment um, I-, I-, I just don't think she needs to be there at all well, she didn't
0: to be there. Neither did both. Okay. He should have been sitting out for, He should have well, been sitting out on the doorstep.
3: Yeah, but it's not like no one knew about Athalas, because both knew about it, was getting some. That's a weird. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so surely he knew that you needed to use it in a, he, he knew what, you know, what it was that it needed, it was used for Morgul. Ah, uh, 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 but injuries. Toriel
0: clearly has healing powers, just like Elrond. They had to get him, get Frodo to Elrond. That was the reason.
3: apparently every elf does.
0: Oh, really? Not all. So when, no. no. when just fixing. him in had the They had plenty.
3: No, of I, I. That was being sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> I was being sarcastic about the thing about all elves are good at. Are uh, good at. Magic oh yes, of course. Of your elves.
2: elf is always your healer. Yes.
3: Yeah. Um. But no, Elrond is. He's a, he, he's a good at healing he's good at he has magics um, <laughs> <laughs> he does um,
2: magics at, I has them
3: yeah um, and I think all think the about, magics <laughs> um, so I think both could have just healed him with the Athalas because it was not again it was not
0: he could but uh, it wouldn't have been so
3: romantic yeah Frodo like, got stabbed oh say so Frodo got stabbed by a marble blade while using the ring and it was in his shoulder and the bit was digging to very his heart very close to his heart and it,
0: it was it left got, there yeah. yeah oh actually no, the, um, the point was still inside uh, Keeley as well wasn't it but it was in his the, the knee which he could thought. easily get out
2: but I, I really liked the fact that Toriel was there and the the bit afterwards, or even sort of in the lead up to it, when he sees her and thinks it's, you know, he keeps telling himself it couldn't really be her. She couldn't possibly be here. Oh, the um, bit
0: when he says that she's walking in starlight. Did that uh, not melt your heart? Come it on, you no, no, no. self No, this oh. is
2: what I was trying to explain to you at the time. The whole scene I loved. It was just that one little fragment that I found a little bit disjointed. Yeah, I think uh, uh,
0: Keely didn't like that one little fragment either. <laughs>
2: But, the, you know, the, the bit at the end where um, when he, he reaches for a hand was just... I, I loved that. I had tears in my eyes. It was... I, the, oh, God. At the point at which she started to glow, what popped into my head was the bit from... Is it Wayne's World where Dreamweaver plays? When he sees Heather.
0: Yes, it's not Heather, it's um, Uh Cassandra.
2: Oh, yes, of course it is. Sorry, I was thinking of Garth with Heather Lockley. Heather Lockley. Um, no,
0: that, that's uh, Foxy, Foxy Lady. Foxy
2: Lady, yeah.
0: <laughs> no, actually, <laughs> yeah, technically so- that's the Romeo and Juliet music. The na 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 which would have been oddly appropriate.
2: Indeed. But, um, but no, the, the, as a whole, I, I thought the scene worked very well. I just, I don't know, maybe for me it's because it makes Arwen a little bit less special if Toriel glows too.
0: But it also, it makes Elwand a bit less special if Toriel has healing magic, too. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I yeah. just I, I just thought it was too similar to the Flesh of the Ring, and it wasn't needed. I think if, he did, if he'd arrived and knew that Bofor could steal him, she'd gone with Legolas, that I, I would have preferred that. But. So basically,
2: all if she if...
0: could do is kick ass, just like Legolas.
2: Well, even if... Um,
0: uh, if she'd brought is... him King's Foil. I, that's what or I thought like she was that, going yeah. to do actually.
3: Or tell Bofor how to heal him and or just like say you don't you know do this. Um yeah.
2: Or if Bofra had done the healing and she'd stood in the doorway making sure the orcs didn't come and get them while he was doing it or
0: maybe Yeah. yeah. I think ultimately the fact that she was in possession of the knowledge that she would need King's Foil, it was a Morgul blade, that was the one thing she could bring to the scenario uh, without necessarily I, glowing.
3: Bofa yeah. already knew that.
0: Yeah, Beaufort knew that, but they, he <laughs> didn't have to know that. It was written that Bofa knew that, because that way he would actually be able to find the stuff. Anyway. So, yeah, I think maybe 1% of the population would actually have enjoyed that bit, and I'm in that 1%. <laughs> And, and then, yeah, it's- I
2: did it, enjoy it. I did like it.
0: Then there's the confrontation with Smog, uh, Smaug and, uh, and two Saukusses. <laughs> the, the, the bit with all, all the gold-
2: making me harsher than I am.
0: Yeah, you're- the, the bit with all- You're making you harsher than you are. <laughs> The bit with all the gold and the sort of the molten gold that's going somewhere—like, what are they doing with this? And then there's that, the, like, we filled a statue with molten gold. Psych. And then they come yeah. in gold, and then he gets—he's a fire drake. Yeah. If you're going to go for any element, it probably so you, shouldn't be fire.
3: Do you really want to put the sort of very, already very tough scales of a dragon put gold on it?
0: Yeah. Also, that's a big haul to have yeah. to clear up. Of yeah. like sixteen feet oh. worth of gold, solid it's a nice,
3: goddamn gold. Nice gold, it's a nice gold floor now. Yeah,
2: it's all worth decorating, I suppose. Yeah,
3: it's got dragon footprints in it.
0: <laughs> but I mean, gold catchy. actually melts at a relatively low temperature in terms yeah, of other metals, so it wouldn't it even be all again. that hot. It would be like uh, for a human getting candle wax on them and going, ah, it's not too bad, but ah. <laughs> <laughs> just you know, this is as much as I know about dragons. <laughs>
2: I thought you were going to say this as much as I know about candle wax.
0: (laughs) Oh, ow. Careful. (laughs) And we've got off on a little tangent. Anyway. um, So, yeah. uh, uh, For me, um, Benedict Cumberbatch, absolute uh, star of the show for this one. And uh, 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 if this film achieved nothing else, it was the absolute best dragon uh, ever. And... um, the fact that they didn't resolve the dragon scenario will at least get people back in droves for the finale yeah although a lot of people even people on the forum are like ah can't even be bothered to see this one i'll wait and you know fair enough but i just i cannot relate to that okay so if you could see anything in the uh, third and final film then what would it be
3: uh, I think just sort of linking what they, cause they keep hinting about what they're going to link, uh, the third film and, and the fellowship with. I, I assume it'll be Barlin going to Moria. Yeah. Um, sort of see how that pans out, but, and as, as everyone said, just, um, more characterization for the dwarves and they can do before the battle, uh, and, um, hopefully a reprise of Misty Mountains either before, uh, as a sort of rousing thing or, or after the battle. Uh, as that plays out, yeah, so she could actually be in the third film. She's gonna go because I see. I assume Bilbo is gonna go. Also, Bilbo go through um, Rivendell again.
0: Yes, they could definitely reprise something to do with Ian home.
3: Yeah, um, well, I don't think I have to because I think it's probably gonna end like Return of the King did with him finishing that bit of the book and yeah. then just going, "Oh, Gandalf, hello," <laughs> or just waiting for Gandalf
0: yeah I'm, I'm anticipating actually um that most of the film will just be its own thing, and then the very last few minutes will be like the end of uh, Revenge of the Sith where there's just a few little tertiary nods towards things that are about to happen and um, yeah. and that will eventually happen so it'll probably be less than we hope for okay here 's something I really like to see Weta deciding to move on to something else that may not be as big as the Lord of the Rings but uh Something of the scale of Mass Effect, something of the scale of Bioshock, something of the scale of um, what else is there?
3: I mean, a Mass Effect movie would <laughs> Yeah, especially if it's. I mean, cause all those props they made for the, the Halo film so well done that it's like I'm hmm. them to make. I don't really want. I don't. Well, I I would like a Halo film in a, a sort of same vein as Earthfall, Dawn to Dawn. Sort of you know, ancillary characters with Master Chief just being. That sort of, you know, don't actually learn anything about him because that's in the in the, yeah. the game. It's just like as a oh, you know, super soldier character. Uh, that Mass, Mass, a Mass Effect film would be so good. Yeah,
0: but I, I just I don't want to see Weta Workshop go right. So we'll just sort of just be jobbing from now on. I, I like the idea of they need some rest, but there needs to be something else on the table for them to move forward to because yeah, I thought,
3: that I thought, vacuum that sucked in uh, after Return of the King just made me feel terrible. Yeah, I hope they don't get. Or they just get stuck doing fantasy stuff because that, the, that yeah. the the Halo stuff is so well done that that they could do you know such good work with uh, sci-fi stuff.
0: It would be nice to see them change gear. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and another thing I'd like to see a lot more Richard Taylor in the appendices. He was hardly in them. I love Richard Taylor. I want to hear more from what, what he has to say about this side of the uh, filmmaking. Mm-hmm.
3: I, I, I think, I think it's the dependencies for these films because it is such a, uh, cohesive story that it's probably going to be, you know, a big block on one DVD or one blue just because that, you yeah, know, they could use any because the, the, the entire story could be basically told. Yeah. I'd, I'd rather do it, you know, the third one have all the the, like the music one and the, the props one and the, uh, uh, weapons and, and armors and, Uh, dresses, things like that. Yeah.
2: Also, there's a lot more input from uh, Weta Digital Yeah. these, which I I don't know that Richard Taylor necessarily has that much of an input into. I mean, obviously, he's in charge of the whole thing, Mm. but he is very much the the practical effects
0: guy. But he took over on wardrobe (laughs) from Nyla Dixon, so it's... uh...
2: True, yeah, no, still, he did have a major hand made on,
0: on the fabrication yeah. side of things.
2: I, one thing I'd actually like to hear from uh, is uh, Gino Acevedo and his mm. transition from uh, incredibly magnificent makeup guy um, to he's actually learned the the digital side of things.
0: Yeah, he yeah, had to update, go digital. In the middle of the earth, in the land of the shire, lives a brave little hobbit whom we all admire. With his long wooden pipe, fuzzy woolly toes, he lives in a hobbit hole And everybody knows him.
1: Bilbo. Bilbo Baggins.
0: Bilbo.
2: Bilbo Baggins.
0: He's only three
1: feet tall. Bilbo. Bilbo Baggins. The bravest little hobbit of them all. Now, hobbits are peace-loving folks, you know. They don't like to hurry, and they take things slow. They don't like to travel away from home. They just want to eat and be left alone. But one day, Bilbo was asked to go on a big adventure to the caves below to help some dwarfs get back their gold that was stolen by a dragon in the days of old. Bilbo. Bilbo Baggins. Bilbo.
2: Bilbo Baggins.
1: He's only three feet tall. Bilbo. Bilbo Baggins.
2: The bravest hobbit of them all.
1: Well, he fought the goblins. He battled a troll. He riddled with Gollum. A magic ring he stole. He was chased by wolves, lost in the forest, escaped in a barrel from the elf king's halls. Bilbo. Bilbo Baggins. Bilbo. Bilbo Baggins. He's only three feet tall. Bilbo. Bilbo Baggins. The bravest little hobbit of them all. Now he's back in his home in the land of the Shire. That brave little hobbit whom we all admire. Just sitting on a treasure of silver and gold, puffing on his pipe in his hobbit hole.
0: So yeah, um, We anticipate the third and final installment with great tantalization. Is that a word in this case? It is now. Great (laughs) anticipation.
2: (laughs) We shiver with it.
0: (laughs) Oh, maybe a a slight return of Gollum to see him... Venturing out of his cave, but no, he doesn't venture out until a lot later.
3: Mm. 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 We'll see. Yeah, but they could. I mean, yeah, but the end could be set a bit in the future. I mean, if it, it could or be take
0: place, place over multiple years.
3: Yeah, Yeah, it could just be a yeah. It could be a whatever the op- ep- epilogue. There we go. Trying to work out the opposite of a prologue. Or it could be an epilogue that did take place between just basically between the end of the Hobbit and the beginning of Fellowship.
0: I was thinking of doing a, a, a one-man audio drama called The Hunting of Smeagol where uh, Gandalf and Aragorn uh, go to track Smeagol down after he's escaped from Barad-dûr to um, get him from it. That's actually something from the is it, is it Unfinished Tales, or will I come under uh, the fire of the Tolkien Estate if I dare? <laughs>
3: I think it's in the appendices. appendices I think it's yeah. sort of It's an actual it's somewhere thing. That I know, yeah.
0: But yeah, I, I don't do a bad Aragorn. I definitely do quite a good Gandalf and Smeagol, so that could be done. Need to do elves
3: as well. Do you want to be an elf? Like, that not fucking act. So. Hey, morning.
0: <laughs> yeah. Hello.
3: Yeah, we sort of took him out for a walk. We left him up a tree and he escaped.
0: <laughs> yeah, about that. Didn't yeah. think to tie him up.
3: No.
0: feel bad about that <laughs> <laughs> then you get Icy Fire by Ed Sheeran and uh, it's, it's, it's a lovely sort of understated finale because they could have gone for all doom and gloom here or they could have gone for like very uneasy or they could have gone for uh, very dramatic but no it's, it's just this sort of quiet, sad but at the same time kind of uh, exhilarating little ballad uh, from the point of view of Bard Mm. Uh, thank you very much, Chris and Sharon, for coming on once again to talk about The Hobbit.
3: That's okay, I like talking Lord of the Rings, so. Cool.
0: And we will leave with Ed Sheeran's
3: Icy Fire. Which the first 30 seconds is the best.
0: <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah, as soon as the guitar uh, kicks in, yeah. and the clap machine, then just stop no, it. This doesn't have a clap machine, that's fine. No one thank does.
1: Oh, Misty the mountain below Keep careful watch of my brother's souls And should this sky be filled with fire and smoke Keep watching over during sun is to end in fire, then we shall all burn together. Watch the flames climb high, high into the night, calling out Father, rope. Oh, stand by and we will watch the flames burn over and on the mountainside. Should die tonight We should all die together, raise a glass of wine for the last time cold in our father oh, Prepare as we will watch the flames burn Over and on the mountain Desolation comes upon the sky. I see fire. Inside the mountain I see fire. Burning the trees and I see fire. Hollowing soul I see fire. Burning the breeze and I hope that you Close to the flame, calling out, farther oh, hold fast, and we will watch the flames burn open oh, on the mountainside. Desolation comes upon the sky, and I see fire inside the mountain. I see fire.